In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, a good one. Before I start the talk, we printed out for all of you in English the Akathus to St. Baisios, which you can have. They're, they're over there. They're, you can take them. In that Akathus, someone pointed out to me that there was a section which, or there's a few sections referring to parents and their children, to couples and references of how St. Paisius helped married couples or helped married people with their children. And there's excellent references there. I was going to go through it, but once I start those things, it takes up too much of the talk. Those who are listening to it on the CD or MP3, they can get that from orthodoxengland.org and you put in, I think, into the find Akathist or St. Bayus or something like that, and then you will find the Akathist where you can print it out. But for you people, you can have a little book that we made up for you. Now, today's talk is going to be another interesting talk, but we don't just listen to talks because they're interesting. We listen to talks so that we can benefit from them, change our lives, help ourselves and help our children. We don't listen to talks because we find it interesting, just like you would about a, a documentary about the Second World War. That's interesting too. Or some geographic program on the world, whatever those channels are on the Foxtel. We listen to talks to change our lives and apply what we learn. Now, philosophy... Greek philosophy in the ancient Greek times, that could be understood by the mind. And today, those who study philosophy, they use their minds. And if they're very smart, they, they can produce some very deep philosophical works and some of them can read uh, the philosophers of old, ancient Greeks and things like that. But when those same people who are gifted in their ways, with their minds, when they try to read orthodox material, spiritual things, they can't do it. Because orthodox spirituality does not just work with the mind, but it works with the heart. Philosophy is just the mind. And that's why whoever reads philosophy, if they've got some intelligence, they'll understand it. But not everyone who reads the Bible or reads orthodox material or listens to a talk can actually absorb what's being said unless they are given the grace of God. You don't need the grace of God to study philosophy. And we can say philosophy is interesting, but spiritual things are not interesting, but they are soul-saving. They affect the soul. So I was going to do a, an introduction, which when I did, like I did on the psychology last time, and it took me two hours and ten minutes. It was only meant to be done a little bit. So I took half the talk and I couldn't complete the, the full talk. So I want to get straight into it today. And I'm going to give some examples of some families, and then we can look at that today, what the saints say. So a woman approached me and 
she said that her child, her son, who was a teenager, was constantly weak and mentally, it seemed maybe mentally unwell, couldn't take much. And I said to her, maybe he's got some type of deficiency. Now remember that when people go to doctors, doctors don't always find everything. There could be things that are inside of us that they can't find. Not, they haven't got the test for everything. But anyway, so she went to a particular doctor who's a doctor but deals with other things. And he found that he had some vitamin mineral deficiency. So he recommended some of these supplements. And what happened was that he didn't want to take them. And the mother became like very upset and started kind of uh, constantly saying, why don't you take them, why don't you take them, why don't you take them? And he was saying, I don't want to take them. So she asked me, what should I do? I said, give him examples of those who were in similar situation to him, how they got better. So she went through them and he still didn't want to take them. And I said, well, you've done your duty. You can't, um, you can't um, keep on badgering him because that will create a problem. I said, just leave him. And she was a bit shocked. Leave him to be sick. I go, yes, leave him to be sick. That's what you do. You leave him to be sick. And meanwhile, you do prayers for him, that he be enlightened, and that's it. You can't do anything. Now, she could go two ways. She can keep on going and then that will create a distance between her and the son, or she can leave him alone, do some prayers, and leave him be. I gave that advice. Now, whether that advice is good or not, we'll see as time goes on. The second example was there was a family and they brought up their children eating healthy foods, very limited sugar, because sugar's bad for, for children. So uh, this young boy was brought up with not much sugar, in his diet. But what he would do as he got older, he would find ways of getting it when they went visiting or someone would give him a chocolate and someone would give him this. So he was continually trying to get his fix of sugar, which was amazing because why would he be wanting sugar if he wasn't brought up with the sugar? And then as the child got older, nine, ten, you know, when they're a bit younger, you can control them a little bit better. But older, there was all these arguments between him and the parents with the sugar. Now, I said to the parents, I asked my advice, and I said, just make sure you do your duty, you don't supply sugar, you don't have all these sugary things at home, like biscuits, cakes, and all this other rubbish, which have no uh, nutritional value. And I said, and just, um, if he wants to continue to have sugar everywhere else, that's that, you just tell him that's not good for you, and that's that. So, and the parents were shocked again, like the first lady, and said, oh, what are you saying? If we don't stop him, he's going to get fat. I said, let him get fat. Pray, you do your duty, you encourage him, but if he wants to continue, you can't strap him down. You can't keep on fighting and fighting and fighting because it creates problems. So I told them, leave him be. And lo and behold, what happened? He got fat. So he got fat. And I think when he started developing breasts, I think that was the last straw for the poor thing. And he started to realise that my parents were right and that I've got to uh, do something about it. Now, 
someone might say, no, that's no good. You've got to be on the kid. You've got to tell him continually or tell her, no sugar, no sugar, no sugar, or take your vitamins, or take your medication, all those type of things. Now, the, I believe that after they get to a certain age, especially after they pass the age where they can confess, which is usually sometimes seven, eight, nine, depending on their, their maturity, they have to take responsibility for themselves as well to some degree. You can't just keep on being on them. So another woman rang me up to discuss her children about some, you know, just general things. And in the conversation, she just mentioned, but not really, that's, what, that's not what she rang up about, that she has to constantly remind her children to do their homework, assignments. And I said, why do you have to constantly remind them? Because, oh, because they forget or they won't do it and I don't want them to get in trouble at school. And sometimes she even was helping them. Sometimes even doing, some parents even do the work for the, for the children. But not only that, she would have to remind them of their sporting events. And these are not just young kids, these are also some older kids that are teenagers, where she had to remind them of their medical appointments courses, seminars, like she was basically, she had a diary and she would write everything down of her children, all their events, what day, what time. So when you ask the children, oh, when's your next um, camp? They just say, I don't know. Mum takes care of that. When's your exam? I don't know. So what I said to her was, let them be, leave them, and don't remind them, you say to them, they've got to take care. As they get older, as teenagers, and even, they've got to start taking care of themselves. And I said, but she couldn't let go because she said, oh, if I don't tell them, they'll miss the appointments. And I said, let them. So one day, one of her children had a, um, a seminar, and she forgot. And the mother didn't remind her. She forgot all about it. And then she said to the mother, oh, can you drive me because I'm going to be late? And the mother said, no, I've got other appointments. So then the, um, the person had to, the child had to leave, catch transport on their own, and they went two, three hours late. And then some of you might say, well, that's no good because she missed some important thing that will help her in her life. No, the value, in my opinion, the value of missing that is far far better than the value she would have got just from the seminar. We have to let children make mistakes, learn, and things like that. If you're always behind them, in my opinion, I'm telling you my opinion for the time being, and later on we'll see what the saints say. I'm telling you what I advised, and I said, let them... You know, like there are some parents who even get to the stage of even doing the applications for their children for university or applications for jobs... And these are kids that are old. Got to be at least 18 and get into university and the parents doing the application form. It's a bit too much, isn't it? Now we go to another one. We have adult, adult children, adult children who are married, with, with children themselves, and you see that the parents, and particularly the mothers, go to their house while they're at work, clean their houses up, wash their clothes, iron for them, even cook their meals at their house, or their children come past their house and pick up the, the food for them so they can have food. And why? Because the adult children work. 
make money, and a lot of times also because they want to go out, have a social life, and therefore they get their parents even to babysit for them. Now, you might say, but isn't that good for a parent to help? Well, it depends. Aren't people today very stressed with life and with children, so parents, older parents, should aid them? Yes, you're supposed to aid them, but not where you go and you become their slaves. And meanwhile, those people are, in my opinion, developing into monsters. Now, you're doing all those things for them, and at the end they put you into the old people's home. Something is wrong. Something is wrong there. But we'll see what the saints say about that too. And the last example, a man that was religious, which I've given this example before, his wife was religious, but he was very religious, and he brought up his children, confession, going to church every Sunday, praying together, fasting. Uh, but later on, those children, as they got a bit older, they became negative towards the church. Why would they become negative towards the church if they were brought up in the church? One person actually even said to me that um, she can't even read the lives of saints. I said, why? Because oh, my mother used to read it all the time to us and basically I got sick of it and I can't read the lives of saints. So something's wrong there. That's the person who I mentioned last time in the talk when I said that he said to me, oh, you don't know what it's like to bring up children. Remember that person that I said in the last talk? Anyway, he said to me, you don't know what it's like. This doesn't understand that a priest has spiritual children, a priest has responsibility, which is far greater than a parent with their children. The, the, the relationship of a priest with the spiritual children is greater than a parent with their physical children because the priest is fighting day in and day out for the salvation of their souls. Not only for the spiritual children, but for the children of the spiritual children. So I could be taken responsibility for a couple, but I've also got responsibility for their children. And this silly man actually said, oh, you don't know what it's like. And uh, at the end, once when I spoke to his wife, she said to me, um, uh, after many years, she said to me, um, oh, our children, Turkepsan, which I think in English is Turkification. Turkification means that it was an expression that the Greeks used to use when someone would become a Turk. Someone changed their religion from Orthodox to Muslim. It was looked at as bad. Now remember that Greece and other parts of Europe were under the Turks 400 to 500 years and the Turks applied a lot of pressure to the Orthodox to change, sometimes by force. Sometimes the Orthodox people would change because they had more rights. If you were Orthodox, you didn't have many rights, but if you were Turkish, you had more rights. So sometimes people would be, will deny their faith to become Muslims, and that's what they used to say, oh, you know, those people, Turkepsan, they became Turks. So she said to me, oh, my children have Turkepsan. I go, what, is, what do you mean? She goes, they don't go to church anymore. They've married or living with people that aren't even Orthodox. Basically a disaster. 
a whole disaster, even though they were brought up in church. Now, how did that get to that stage? How did it get to that stage? And the same for some of you. Some of you are in the church. Some of you are going to listen to the talks. Brought up your children from young in the church. Then later on, those children don't want anything to do with the church. And we have to examine why. You don't just sit there like silly people and say, oh, well, that happens, but it won't happen to us or we don't think about it. It does happen. It happens all the time. And therefore, you must think, why are those children not going to church anymore? How do I prevent it? You know, think to yourself. Okay, let's see what the saints say. I'll start with St. Porfirios. Now, remember, in the first four talks, this is talk number five, in the first four talks, I spoke a lot about trauma and about abuse. And I went through a lot of things which people didn't even think was traumatic for children, if you remember. I'm going to read you the list soon. I've had a whole list of what I've already spoken about in other talks. And it sounded more like a talk on psychology. And people would say, but I thought the church is only about fasting, praying, Holy Communion, the things like that. What's the church got to do with traumas and disturbances and psychological problems and all those type of things? What's the church got to do with all that? And yet, for the last four talks, St. Paisios and St. Porfirios continually talked about psychological problems, emotional problems, trauma of children because of the parents. So this is why St. Porfirios says, another thing that harms children, because so I've already read a lot of the other things that he said, now he comes to another part. Another thing that harms children is overprotectiveness. That is, excessive care, excessive anxiety, and excessive worry on the part of the parents. Now, isn't it normal for parents to worry, care, and have anxiety for their children? Is the saint wrong? Now, some people might say, oh, the saint's wrong. Uh, how they got the boldness to, to speak like that is beyond me, but anyway... Uh, no, but we have to read what he's saying. Excessive care, excessive anxiety and excessive worry. Of course the parents have to care for their children, have some anxiety for their children and have some worry for their children, obviously. But what the saint's saying is excessive care, excessive anxiety, excessive worry harms the children. So what the saint calls overprotectiveness, I don't like a little formula, because I like to think mathematical. Uh, overprotectiveness is the main thing. Equals excessive worry and excessive anxiety and excessive care. So the whole thing generally is called overprotectiveness. Yes, you protect your children, but then there's overprotective. And it's excessive worry, excessive anxiety, excessive care. W for worry, A for anxiety, C for care. And the reason why I do that is 
helps me to remember. So what's that thing again? I was, as I was doing the talk, I go, what's those three again? I kept on forgetting. So I made up a little, a little thing to help me remember. Like I used to teach children to make up things to help them remember mathematical things. So W-A-C, WAC, W-A-C. And it's interesting, WAC is short for wacky. And what that means is that parents who are overprotective are wacky, crazy. That's what I'm saying. Let's see what the saints say about that. That's how I remember it. So now let's look at St. Porfirio's, gives an example. A mother used to complain to me that her five-year-old child was disobedient. And then what would you expect the saint to answer? Well, he's five years old, he's young. But the saint, St. Porfirio's, didn't say that's normal. Because the saints expect parents to teach their children obedience. That's a very big thing for the saints. They want parents, orthodox parents, to teach them obedience. And that's why he answered, it's your fault. Out of the, out of the whole four talks that I've done, I read a lot of examples in which the both Saints Paisios and Porfirios, both of them, would often say, it's your fault. Oh, my children have got problems. It's your fault, if you remember the past talks. It's your fault, I told her, but she didn't understand. Once I went for a walk by the seaside with this mother together with her boy. The little boy let go of his mother's hand and ran towards the sea. There was a sand dune there and the sea came in directly behind it. The mother immediately reacted with anxiety and was about to shout out and run towards the boy who was standing on top of the dune with outstretched arms trying to keep his balance. When I first read this, I go, well, wouldn't you be, of course, have anxiety? If the, I don't think the situation was dangerous as such. I think it was... He might have fallen down the sand or something, but I think it was where he's going to fall in the sea and drown because I don't think the saint would have said to her, don't worry about it. So this is what he said. I calmed her down and told her to turn her back on the boy while I kept an eye on him without him knowing. So he just said to the mother, you ignore him, look the other way, I'll keep an eye on him. Why did he say that? We'll see now. When the boy despaired of provoking his mother's attention and causing her to panic and scream as usual, he calmly climbed down and walked towards us. That was the end of it. Then the mother understood what I meant. So what the saint's saying is that when we carry on with anxiety, screamings, shoutings, don't do this, don't do that, be careful, it actually makes the child worse. It makes the child disobedient and does things to bother you as you, a lot of you know, that I've got children. You're supposed to remain calm and not feed the child with this constant attention in, this, in the form of anxiety, worry and excessive care. That's not good for children. And they pick it up, as we'll read further on, they, will pick, they pick it up 
and they react to it. But as soon as she ignored him, he stopped doing what he was doing. Another example, St. Porphyrus says, a mother used to complain that her little child, that her little boy wouldn't eat all his food, especially his yogurt. The little one was about three years old and tormented his mother every day. I underlined the word tormented. That's true. Most children today torment their parents. Parents today are tormented continually. That's why women want to work. That's why they put them in daycare centres. That's why they send them to school early. That's why they put them in front of the TV. That's why they put them in front of the computer. So as to occupy them so the children don't torment them. Why does it have to be that the children torment their parents? Well, it's what the saint said. It's your fault. That's what he's saying. I said to her, what you should do is this. Empty the refrigerator completely, then fill it with some yoghurt. When lunchtime comes, you'll give Peter his yoghurt. He'll refuse to eat it, of course. In the evening, you'll give it to him again. And the same the next day. In the end, he'll get hungry and will try some. He'll throw a tantrum, but you'll just put up with it. Today, as soon as a child throws a tantrum, the mother, especially the mother, gives in. Gives in. Gives in all the time, giving in because they don't want to hear the shouting or because they feel sorry for the child or they don't want people to think that you're a bad mother or a bad father because the child's shouting. He says, just put up with it. Thereafter, he'll eat it quite happily. That's just what happened. And yogurt became Peter's favourite food. Now, the advice sounds a bit similar to some of the advice I said in the beginning. Leave him. Oh, but how? Two days he might not eat. He'll get hungry. He'll get weak. He'll die. Something's going to happen to him. He'll get sick. And the saint says, yogurt, and that's it. And I had a situation like that where a child wouldn't eat certain food, and I said, just give it to him. He wouldn't eat it. That was lunch. I think dinner came, same food came out. He just sat there. And I said, he's going to break soon. And the next day, he goes, I'm hungry. Eat the food. You eat that food, then I'll give you other food. He ate it. But you see, today people are scared. They say, no, no, we can't, that's child abuse. Or um, the child's going to hate us. Spoilt children hate their parents. Parents that are firm are not hated by their children. Parents that are firm and loving, but not firm, as we'll see as a parenting style, with strict discipline. So he said that to her. And she, she did it, and later on he ate the yogurt. Now, again, we come to the thing. What's a saint doing discussing the yogurt? We should be speaking about the Jesus prayer and all these deep spiritual things. Just like the Alptana elders, people used to get scandalised when in Russia, when all these people would come there, and some obviously village people would come there, and speak to the saints, and then once it was, I think it was Saint Leonard, maybe, one of the greatest staritzes, elders of, in Russia. And he, I think it was him, one of them anyway, they were great, and he was sitting there talking to the woman about her, um, her chickens or something. And someone says, why are you speaking about the chickens? He goes, that's their life. You've got to 
That's their life. That's, that's, that's their livelihood. That's how they live. How can you just ignore it? So when I read those type of things, because when I first came to the church as well as an older person, I, I did have that thing whereby, because um, I read the wrong books as well, I had the thing that orthodoxy is to do with all spiritual and nothing else matters. But when I started reading elders advising on chickens and, and, and um, giving advice for people to go to sanitariums because they were having nervous breakdowns, and when I noticed that you know, they were talking about pensions, like you said, well, why don't you work there and then that way you'll get, you'll get a pension when you, f- when you finish your job there. It's a better job than that job. When I started noticing, I go, oh, I think I got all this wrong. And that's why a lot of people get it wrong. They think that orthodoxy is separate to everyday life. But orthodoxy is part of everyday life. The yogurt is part of everyday life. The pension is part of everyday life. If you get sick, it's part of everyday life. That's what the church is involved with. Now he goes on about the yogurt example. These things aren't difficult, but many mothers are unable to do them, and the result is that they give their children a very bad upbringing. Don't give in all the time, and if you do, then you will bring up the children badly even for something as trivial as the yogurt example or the sand dune example. When I've helped people, from my own experience, I might stick on something that to, even to the parents, it's trivial. I might say, no, 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 don't let them do that. And I make a big deal about it. And they go, but why are you making a big deal about that? Because it will cause problems later on. See? And he said that. If you don't, if you're not careful, you'll give your children a very bad upbringing. Mothers who are always standing over their children and pressurising them, forcing them, that is, overprotecting them, have failed in the job as a mother. So we come to that word again. He said, mothers who are always standing over their children and pressurising them, that is, overprotecting them, have failed in their job as a mother. You need to leave the child alone to take an interest in its own progress, is what the saint's saying. You've got to give the child responsibility. Yes, when they're young, of course. But when they start getting a little bit older, even eight years old, nine, I used to tell parents, you give the child the option. You want to take the medicine, you take it. You don't want to take it, then don't take it, but you'll get sick. You make the decision. You can't ram the medicine down their throat. You can't force the yogurt down the mouth of the child. You've got to give some responsibility and... When you do that, God will arrange for the child to learn what you're saying is correct. For example, a father and mother took their child to the beach, similar example, and the child went up on the break wall, like those rocks, rocks, but wasn't, the water wasn't deep. And I think the father said, come down, come down from there. And the child wouldn't listen. And so the father said, 
you're going to fall. That's your responsibility. It's not right what you're doing. You're not being obedient. Come here and get away from there. Child ignored him. He slipped and hurt himself. But he didn't die. He hurt himself. And he learned, oh, when dad tells me something, I better be a being. And this is what you read in the lives of saints. When a Christian parent tells a child to do something and they don't do it, God will arrange for something to happen so that child can learn that disobedience produces wrong results. You don't have to be there. Come down, come down, come down, come down. Every minute like a parrot. Or like your... Um, GPS things in your car, red light, red light, you know, all those type of things. That's how some people sound. When I was coming today, I was in the car and I was trying to discuss with the driver something and the GPS, I don't know what happened to it, it was going camera, 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 camera. It was just going crazy like that. And I said, how appropriate this is like to talk. This is how parents are. Eat the yogurt, eat the yogurt, eat the yogurt. I'll continue to fight. Starve the child one day, we'll, we'll eat the yogurt. There's no worries about that. And God will help you because what you're doing is you're doing it for the sake of the child. See, it's like when you discipline a child. One parent, as St. Paisua says, when they don't understand when they're very young, sometimes you give them a little bit of a smack. So, you, one parent gives a bit of a smack to the child child learns. It doesn't get disturbed. The child falls into place, not when they're really young. And then another parent smacks the child, the child goes crazy. What's the difference? Of course, there's differences in the children, but I believe it's differences in the parent. One parent is smacking the child and in the parent's heart is, I have to do this so that to keep the child safe and for the child to grow up properly in a you know in a right manner and has to learn obedience and to be careful and things like that the other parent when it was smacking the child smacked the child because it was irritating him or her or because of the ego of the parent how dare that child not listen to me all these wrong reasons so that's the difference when you discipline your children and the same here, when you are doing things for your children where you might think, oh, it's going to get sick, it's going to fall, it's going to do... When you're doing it for the right reason, then God will protect them and arrange for things to happen to help them. Anyway, that's a bit deep, but if you, those of you who have tried it know what I mean. Um, and I like that one. The child has to take an interest in its own progress. You say, if you do your maths or something, you will progress. If you don't, you're not going to progress. Then you, will, then you will succeed. When you are always standing over the child, they will react. They, they become lethargic, weak-willed, and generally unsuccessful in life. This is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the children immature. Very, very, very strong words. Overprotective equals W, worry, A, anxiety, C, care, excessive. Excessive worry, excessive anxiety, excessive care. And St. Porfus is saying, when you are overprotective, this causes the children to become lethargic. 
and I looked it up for you and found a few words. Lazy, apathetic, not caring, and inactive. Then he says that the, the child will become lethargic if you're constantly on them. Weak-willed, well, basically inactive, weak-willed, they don't have much will, they're not interested in much, and generally unsuccessful in life. Unsuccessful in life are children who are brought up by parents who are overprotective. And it says, this is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the children immature. Immature, they don't develop properly, they don't learn skills of life, they don't develop emotionally, who knows, whatever. He goes, they are immature. Now that sounds like uh, abuse to me. So basically what the saint's saying is, you are overprotective of your children, you're abusing them. Oh, but how can you say they're being abused? Well, sorry, but if you are doing something which makes your child lethargic, weak-willed, and unsuccessful in life and immature, wouldn't you say that's abusive? And actually, when you read the effects of trauma in children, they are the things that, that are read. It's traumatic. Uh, so an overprotective parent is traumatising their children is abusing their children, and that's why those children are unsuccessful. It's not good. Now, St. Paisus, let's see what he says about the same thing. Parents cannot help their children by force. They suffocate them. That's another word, suffocate. When they're constantly hovering over them, no, not this, no, not that, do this, but do it this way, they're not helping their children. Forcing them to do what? what? What he's saying is, it's like, this is my words, it's like the, he's saying, I'm going to force you to let me help you. I'm going to force you to let me do it for you. Because these overprotective parents also do it for their children. I'm going to force you to do it my way. Force, all the time, force. Both examples of the sand dune and the yoga, there was no force. Just left them, but left it like that. See, my example of the, of the boy with the vitamin problems, didn't want to take his supplements, no force. The example of the, uh, what was the other one that I read? The yoga was the saint, well, my, my examples, the ones that I said at the beginning. Which one? The sugar, no force. If they want to get fat, in. But, you know, I think when you're not on their back, there's more chance to make them change. When you're on their back, they're not going to change. Um, then he said this, St. Paisios, parents should pull on the reins gently enough so they won't break. You know the reins of a horse when the person pulls on the, on the horse? You know those reins that are like the, the bits are in their mouths? He says, you pull on the children gently. So it's like a horse. If you pull on it too much, you might pull on it and then find that the teeth are at the end of the rope, the teeth of the horse, because you've pulled the teeth out. So it's the same as with the parents. Don't break your children by being too strict on them. 
parents can keep watch over their children to keep them in line, but without creating a distance between them. When I read that at first, I said, what does that mean, create a distance, create a distance? person who will help me type these things up, um, she actually worked out. She actually said, create a distance is that, um, what I said in the beginning, when you're all the time badgering the children, nagging, 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 you make the children to be distant from you. You create a, this separation. He says, you pull on them, yes, be a bit strict, but if you overdo it, you will create a distance where the children won't want you. And that's true. A lot of children don't want their parents because of this overprotectiveness. And I like that where the saints say, suffocating, hovering over them. Do you know what hovering means? We're going to come to that in a minute. What does hovering mean? Because some of you that English is not your first language, you might not understand the word hover. And hover is going to be important because that's going to be the main part of our talk today. Now, let's look at this one. So we said that we don't want the children to be distant from us. So let's look at this example. St. Paisa said, Just today a mother came here with her son, a tall young man, and he was sick. The child was sick, the, the boy. What can I do, father, said the mother. Our boy doesn't eat, doesn't even want to see us, she told me. I told her what to do, and then she asked again, what shall I do now? You might have missed the point there. This is what happens. I've experienced it too, but you tell someone something, they ignore it, and they go, but what should I do? But I just told you. But what should I do? They're so locked in. They must like they're in some type of panic attack or something, and they just go on. But you tell them what to do anyway. So the saint's saying, I told her what to do, and then she said, what shall I do? Then the person who the elder was speaking to said, perhaps, elder, she did not understand what you told her. And that's why she answered like that. And the saint said, of course she understood. I told her, I can't bear to sit an hour with you. How do you expect the boy to be with you all the time? Isn't that a bit harsh for a saint to speak like that? He says, the saint said, I can't be with you for an hour. I don't, I don't say things like that. I usually say, I can't be with you for five minutes. <laughs> um, but that's because I'm not a saint. You see, he had, he had an hour of patience. Because <laughs> I'm not a saint, I had f got around five minutes of patience. So, and it is irritating when they don't, when they don't listen. Anyway, so he said... You have driven him crazy. No, I love him, said the mother. How can you love him if he can't relax being near you? He wants to leave the house because he wants to be in another environment. When he's away from you, he's fine. For him not to want to be with you must mean that you too are at fault for this situation that you find yourself in with your boy, which is really a man. Well, you, he calls him the boy, but you know, like, you know, old people, they say, how are you, my, my, my boy? And the, the person could be 30 years old. So this, I don't know how old this one was, but he was a tall, young man. So, and that is true. If you remember my first talk, 
that I did on this, talk number 70, uh, I went through a lot of examples of parents who children hate them. Maybe the parents don't even know it, but the children don't want to ring them, don't want to be with them, they avoid them, uh, they're happy when they die and things like that. And I think people might have found that, that talk quite shocking. At the end I got sick and I had to cut it short and I didn't give the hopeful part of it. I had to give the hopeful part in Talk 71. Um, but hopefully those who listen to Talk 70 will also listen to 71 because that's where I give more hope for those people who were brought up by parents like that or for those parents who made mistakes. Uh, but I went through a lot of examples in that. I don't want to go all through them then, but that's true. And one of my best examples in that talk was two brothers. They wouldn't talk to their parents. Hello, goodbye. That was it. They'd be in their room. And the mother would bring the food to them in the room. They, wouldn't, they couldn't eat with the parents. They couldn't speak f further than hello, goodbye. That's it. Disturbed. And why? Because that mother was always on them. Comb your hair, wear your jumper, make sure you put shoes on, make sure you put the this on, like that, all the time, all the time. That's, that's uh, why. Nagging, nagging, overprotective, overcare. One of the boys, which I, which I later on got to know a little bit, he, he was like 16, he just still didn't know how to catch a train. He didn't know how to catch, all he knew was to catch the school bus, but he didn't know how to go on a bus separate to having a school pass. He didn't know how to go on a train. He had never been anywhere because the mother was overprotective. And they became sick. And when the mother died, he was happy. Didn't say it, but I got it out of him, but he was happy. Why? For someone to be glad their mother or father dies, it must mean that they suffered. Which means that this nagging, this overprotectiveness is really bad. Which is what I'm trying to say. It's a, it's a form of abuse. So when a child says being abused physically by the parents, obviously that child wants to get away from the parent. And some of you say, I understand that. But overprotectiveness? How can that be a form of abuse? Well, we just heard the saints say, you're driving him crazy. You're smothering them. You make them weak. You make them unsuccessful in life. So this boy, he wanted to get away from the mother. And then the saint said, you're at fault for him to be like that. Why would he want to not be at home? Why does he want to go somewhere else? Because you're abusing him. And he goes, don't provoke him. You're emotionally, you ready for it? You are emotionally abusing the boy. That's what St. Paisha says. By treating him the way you do, you are abusing him emotionally. Just by being overprotective. Did we even know that today? Personally, I always thought it was abuse. I had never read these things before. But as a priest from the beginning, I loathed 
that concept of parents nagging, being on the child, I knew that that is abusive. And it was very hard to say it publicly, say in a talk, because people would say, how do you know, what are you talking about, you're, you're crazy or something like that. I wasn't, I don't like to say things publicly without having backup, because I don't want things to be my opinion. So I kept that opinion to myself, but not, I don't have to keep that opinion to myself now, because I've got it there in front of me. Treat him kindly with patience. Having said all that to her, she asked me again, what should I do? The boy does not want us. And then the saint says, how can you communicate with a person like that? To have a boy, a man, that is perfectly fine and they make him out to be stupid. This is detrimental. In other words, this is harmful. This is damaging. And it's not just St. Paisios. We already read St. Paisios said the same thing. It's bad. I was once talking to a young man, actually, at around 17, maybe even 16, and he said to me that he would like to go um, overseas. Well, why would he want to go overseas? Because he wanted to get away from the father. I got that out of him. And then I said, but how long would you like to go for? Because how long is the ticket for? Go a year. What happens if you want to stay two years? And I said to myself, why would a young boy of 16 want to go to a distant country to get away from the father? Because the father was on him all the time. And then you wonder why these kids say they're relieved. They're internally relieved when their parents go. That's very bad and you don't want that. How do you explain the fact that parents are put in nursing homes and the kids don't even come and see them? Why would that be? How could you do that? How could that happen? Something's wrong with the relationship. And then the parents that are in the nursing home making excuses. Oh, they're busy, you know, they've got their own family, they've got their own thing, whatever. Well, aren't you that part of their family? You're the mother. Or you're the father. Well, how come they don't come and see you? Oh, they come a couple of times a year. Sad, isn't it? So, I met a little, the next section, I think I've already answered it. I believe, this is my, I'm, I'm saying this, I believe that parents who are overprotective, who constantly hover over their children, are abusing them. It's another source of trauma to add to our ever-growing list that I've, from the other four talks. Now, as I've said, some of you will say that's ridiculous, too much, you're over-exaggerating, that's crazy. I said I believe that overprotection, which is excessive worry, excessive anxiety, excessive care, is a form of child abuse, not because it's my personal opinion today, I mean, even I had that as an opinion when I was younger, but today I'm saying it publicly, it's not my personal opinion, but it's that of the saints. This is what the saints teach us. And in many cases, it's also what psychologists say. Now, you should all really stand, because I just mentioned the word psychologist, and we have to give them the absolute respect from the last talk, if you remember, that people might think, oh, he's against psychologists. I'm not against psychologists. I, I read some of those things. I, I get a lot out of it. What I'm against 
is when you put a psychologist higher than the Holy Fathers and the saints of the church, than the priests, etc. That's what I'm against. And people that are sick, a lot of times, instead of reading them prayers or commemorating them, we, we send them to psychologists. That's what I'm against. That's why I was making fun last time and saying that today when people speak about them, it's like they've got their mouth full of saliva, psychologists, and like they're um, on some type of drug or something. So I'm not against psychology. Psychology has a lot to offer, limited, limited. But the church has everything. And why would you, as I said last time, why would you prefer crumbs, which is what the psychologists offer us, when you can get nice bread from the Orthodox Church? Bread meaning the teachings of the church. The grace that the church gives. So I won't make you stand up. That's a, that's a joke. But in a lot of other talks in churches today, even here in Sydney, in America, it's like, as soon as the priest mentions the word psychotic, it's like everyone salutes, like you salute to the flag. Like as if there's something like they're gods. Remember what St. Paisus said above to the mother whose child wanted to leave her. You are emotionally abusing the boy. And what St. Porfirio said above about parents who are overprotective, what did he say? Quote, they become lethargic, weak-willed and unsuccessful in life. They're very heavy words. One saint saying emotionally abusive, the other saint saying lethargic, weak-willed and unsuccessful in life. So I think if you put it all together, there's no doubt that overprotectiveness is a form of abuse and it's traumatic for children to have parents that are like that. Now, I gave some examples here quickly of overprotective parents. Um, so, one day, many, many years ago, I was walking with, um, with someone who had a child. The child was young. And we're walking there somewhere along in a, in, in a lane. No cars, just a little lane there. And um, the child was walking on the, along the gutter. You know, I used to do that when I was young. The gutter was a few, I don't know, probably about 15 centimetres high. It was very low. And the child was on there. All of a sudden, I, I just went into shock because the father shouted out, Get down from there, you'll fall. You'll fall. So the boy got off, disturbed, and started walking on the road. And there was some, you know, the gravel, not the gravel, um, the, the tar on the road. There were some areas of the laneway there that was where it was a little bit, the tar was missing. So it might have been one centimetre deep. So as he was walking on there, he said, get away from there, you'll trip. And then we went along and the child saw a, like a little stick or a branch on the, on the road and he wanted to pick it up. Like I used to do that too. He used to pick up sticks and all that, pretend you were fighting. And he goes, put that down, it's dirty. And the child went to touch the tree to feel the leaf. You know, go have experience of life. Don't touch that. Like I said, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If you don't stop, I have to go. 
I'll catch a taxi and I'll go myself. I can't, I can't take this. This is like, you're driving me crazy and I'm over 50. I mean, I mean how that child's going to feel? Like, terrible. And he goes, I'm not going to buy him a bike until he's 18. Then as the child got older and older and older, like past 10, 11, 12, I'm not going to let him touch the lawnmower because he might chop his foot off when he could supervise him. He could be there next to him and let him do it a bit. You know, he does not going to, no, no, he wasn't allowed to do that either. And then years ago, they came to um, bring a box of something, I think it was a box of waters or something. And um, so I said to the boy, pick up the box, please, and put it over there. No, it's too heavy. I said, just let him do it. Just let him do it. It's like it was horrible. And I said, and he, the, the boy got it. It was hard, but if he can't do it, he'll say he can't do it. He got it. I said, now take the bottles out and wash them for me. And the father went to grab the hose to do it for him. I said, no, let him wash the bottles himself. Now, to me, I found that, using the saints' word, suffocating. It wasn't to me. I found it suffocating. I found it abusive. I found it terrible. He was making that child disabled, like a disabled person just about. He actually, it was like he thought his child was disabled. How is that child going to develop? And he was enjoying himself, washing the bottle, something as trivial. This is how bad it is. Or another time, another person came with a child to help a bit while doing something. I said to the boy, pick up the bricks and put them into the wheelbarrow. And the father went to do it. I said, no, there's another father, another crazy person. He went to go and take the bricks for the child. I said, no, let him do it himself. Now wheel it over. No, it's too heavy. And what happened was that he did wheel it and the wheelbarrow fell and the father laughed at him. And the boy got embarrassed. And I said to him, so what if it fell? He goes, oh, see, I was right, it was too heavy. No, he learns. He has to learn. He has to learn to control the wheelbarrow. That's part of life. He has to experiment. He goes, okay, now I've got to be careful. That's how they learn. But if you're always there on them, they're not going to develop. And that's a form of abuse. That's why it says they're unsuccessful in life. And another mother, she was very strict with her child. She would, when the child was young, she would constantly change the clothes of the child if it got dirty a little bit. And then the child uh, one day was in the backyard and um, some other kids were playing with the ball and they were kicking the ball. And so this child was going around with a cloth trying to clean the ball. <laughs> well, you're laughing, but at, at, at the end, um, every time she got a bit of dirt on her, she'd start going into hysterics. Mum, change the clothes, change the clothes. So she actually developed OCD. She became mentally ill and unsuccessful in life. Unsuccessful in life. She actually um, tried to go to university, tried to... Un unsuccessful in life. So she was abused. Well, because the mother was obsessed with keeping her child clean... Maybe she thought, oh, if someone sees the child with some dirt, they might think I'm a bad mother, so I'll change the clothes continually, or who, who knows why she did it, but at the end, she produced a sick child. There's another one. He wasn't allowed, even up the street on his own, to the shop, which was six houses up. How old was he? Well, this went on. I mean, I, I, um, 
I, I remember when he was even 10, 11, 12, he was not allowed to go out of the house. His parents were very old. Old parents sometimes are overprotective. When they're young a bit, they're a bit better. But when they're old, I think the father was around 45 when he had him. He was very overprotective. Wasn't allowed to have friends. It was just to go to school. Probably I think they took him to school. Um, they were scared he might be kidnapped. And uh, they kept him like that even up to the age of 17 or more. Wasn't allowed anywhere until some relatives said to the parents, I've said this story before, uh, if you don't let him out, he's going to become gay. And so therefore, they got scared and they let him out. So he escaped the cage. Later on, he became alcoholic. Later on, he got divorced. And I remember hearing from other people that he would often blame his parents and say, I'm like this because of the way my parents brought me up. My parents were the opposite. So uh, I would be allowed to go anywhere, even from eight years old. I used to travel Sydney on my own. So I used to go to his place, so I would go there on my own, with bus, train, whatever, and then this person was just there containing the house. So when I'd say, oh, let's go up to the shop and buy something, I'm not allowed. Now, both are wrong. Overprotective is wrong, and letting an eight-year-old to go everywhere by himself is also wrong and dangerous. And then we've got the other example of parents who don't give their children chores. They don't chores the jobs in the house. They don't want their children to get tired or they don't want, they want to give their children time to have recreation or do their homework and say, it's okay, we'll do everything for you. Greeks do this a lot. I don't know about other people, but the Greeks, it's like, you know, they'll do everything. The mothers will do everything. Cook, clean, tidy their rooms, give them time to study, won't let them do anything because they want them to succeed or they don't want them to get too tired or whatever. And, um, and that's why that continues later on when they grow up. They're used to it. Now, what I disagree with and I tell parents, don't do this, is when they've got a child studying at school, say high school, or, or when the child goes to university, the parents will say, you don't do anything, you just have time to study. So what the parents do is do everything for them. That means that that child is being conditioned to have one responsibility at a time. The responsibility is to study. Everything else is done for them. And to have fun, recreation. That's it. Later on, when the child finishes studying, and they're still at home, they're saying they're working, it's the same thing. One responsibility. You go to work, I'll do the rest for you. And have fun. Again. But what happens when they get married and have children? It's not one responsibility anymore. There, they have to work, one responsibility, have a relationship with their spouse, it's a second responsibility, take care of their children, a third responsibility, pay the loan, a fourth responsibility, pay the bills, a fifth responsibility, and it goes on. And hence, 
that creates a lot of stress because they're not used to it, and they divorce or they have breakdowns or they commit suicide because the parents were overprotective and they made them, as St. Porfirio said, unsuccessful in life. So when, I, when parents told me, oh, he's studying for the HSC, you know, the, the, the last year of high school, and we've got to do everything for them because they're going to give them more time to study to get high marks. No, you must give them jobs. They need to have their turn of cooking, have their turn of cleaning the house, have their turn of their chores, etc., etc. You don't give them just one responsibility because you're going to make them disabled in life. And a lot of parents, Greeks I know, will not charge even board for their children. Nothing. So they're working, making some of them good money, and the parents say, no, don't worry, we'll pay for the electricity, we'll pay for the gas, we'll pay for the water, we'll pay for the rates, we'll pay for the food, we'll pay for the insurance of the house, and we'll pay for the telephone, etc. You just work and make money. So those children make money, they spend their money on rubbish, or they might save for their house, if they do that at all. And then later on, they get married and they don't know what hit them. All of a sudden, they've got to pay for bills they've never paid. My belief is that children that are working need to pay board to show responsibility for living at the house. You are damaging the children by doing that. Most of the money they're making goes to rubbish anyway. They need to have responsibility. They've got to know whether they pay 200 a week, whatever they're going to pay. They need to know that's going to the water that you're using, electricity that you're using, for the phone calls that you're using, for the internet that you're using, for the gas that was being used to cook your food, etc., etc. Now, that, that is abusive. And I know the Greeks do it. I'm not sure. I think others do it too. We used to make fun when we were young at the Australian Anglo-Saxons, the ones that have been here for generations. And even I would make fun of them and say, oh, they pay board to their parents. Ha, ha, ha. Because our parents would never do that. Now I've realised they were right to charge their children. And how we were brought up was wrong. Now, there's another overprotectiveness. Uh, there are parents who have the fear of negative reactions of their children. This is like a fear. For example, they fear that the children are going to chuck a tantrum or they're going to have an outburst or they're going to not like the parents if they reprimand them or something or they feel sorry for the child. They have this, all this fear. They don't want the child to suffer in any way. Oh, if it goes on the ground and throws a tantrum, it's no good for the children. They feel sorry for them. This, this is what's called overprotective. So what do these parents do a lot of times? They don't reprimand their children. They don't discipline them. They don't punish them in a loving way. And that's abusive too. Because in those children, which are now, this, this is the generation now, those children are growing up where you can't tell them anything. They can't be told anything. They want to be praised continually. They don't want to be reprimanded, told their faults. And so therefore... You have produced children which are 
immature and disabled, not physically, but everything else. So I think we've exhausted that. Now, I went back to, to the four previous talks and made a list of the 20 things which I touched on which caused children trauma. And if you remember, I think it was in the two talks behind, I actually went through the effects of trauma on children physiologically, that is bodily, how they can get physically sick from tra being traumatised, psychologically, in other words cognitively, which means the way they think, and behaviourally, it affects their behaviour. That's what the psychologists say, there's three. But because we are in an orthodox talk, I add a fourth one, which they don't talk about. And that is that it affects the child spiritually as well. So, tr trauma affects a child physiologically, psychologically, behaviourally, and we add spiritually, which you won't find in psychology books. And hence I say that they're limited. These are the 20 things that, I've, that I went back to all the talks and found of what is traumatic for children and really abusive. Number one, what the, this is all from the saints. Lack of love, affection, attention and guidance. And what the saints said, that this causes weakness and they, these children that are brought up with this lack of love, affection, attention guidance are unable to face the problems of life. No, you can go back and listen to those talks. Number two, excessive discipline and harsh reprimands. And the saints said, this causes the children to be wounded and develop psychological problems. Number three, corporal punishment. That is when you hit the children. This causes psychological problems when you hit them uh, too much, for no reason, in the wrong way in the wrong spirit. As I said, when they're very young and they don't understand, you can't explain. When you say to the child, don't go near the iron, it's hot. The child doesn't understand. So you might give a little smack on the, on the bottom. But, but St. Peter said, but when they get older, then you can, you know, like five or four or whatever, you can start speaking to them more logically and, and thing. Now, if they're a bit old and they still don't understand, sometimes you've got to have to use a bit of physical but in the right way. Number four, trauma in the womb. Remember what St. Paul says, traumas are created in the soul of children that stay with them all their life. So if a, if a mother is traumatised while she's pregnant, that trauma will affect the child. And that's pretty harsh. He said... And this trauma will stay in the soul of the child all its life. So that's why it's very important, according to the church, that mothers be very careful while they're pregnant and husbands should be careful not to upset them while they're pregnant because they can have a miscarriage, but they can also uh, create traumas in the child. The fifth one, avoid problems. Oh, yes, it's where St. Paisius says children need to run and play in order to grow naturally and progress. If you have the child confined all the time, especially in units and apartments, then those children don't grow naturally and they don't progress. 
They don't develop. So that's a form of trauma. So if you don't let a child play and you always got it sitting in front of the TV, the computer, video games, if the child is constantly uh, sitting down studying, some parents want them to study, 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 and they're not physically running around and playing, those children will not develop properly, uh, especially in the brain, and that's a form of trauma. That's a form of abuse. Number six, TV and internet, screen time. I'm going to dedicate a talk on that, but I've mentioned that quite a few times. I remember, and I still do, as I get older, I'm, I remember things from when I was very, very, very young. Now remember that I was born in 58, so by the time I was watching TV, what was that? I don't even know when, when my parents got it. But I remember we had the TV when we were very, very young. But because we had a shop, I think that saved me because we were mostly at the shop and there was no TV at the shop. So that one saved me. Uh, but a lot of people watch it all the time. But anyway, when I was young, I remember seeing things and then dreaming about them and being scared and being... Then, and now, thinking about it, I was traumatised. And that was things that were like nothing compared to today. Today, it's really with all, this side, with all the sound effects and the visuals, etc. Those things are very scary and they traumatise children. That's a form of trauma. Now, you might say, are you saying that if we let our children watch TV and internet that we're abusing them? Yes. When they're young, even the psychologists say that children should not be watching TV at all under two. The first two years because of the development of the brain. At least we got to that stage. I think it should be more. But even they saying up to two. But today they're watching it from when they're coming back from the hospital. They just sit them there. And it's also been um, linked that the children who watch TV from very young, from babies, there is brain damage there. But I'm going to dedicate a talk on that. It's going to be a big job, but we have to do a talk on that. Number seven, heterodox schools. That's a form of abuse. What's heterodox schools? Catholic schools, Protestant schools. Parents who send their children to schools where there is heresy to schools who are hostile towards the orthodox faith it's it's abusive because the children lose grace it's forbidden even the since we're in the russian church here someone found for me in uh, the life of Saint Alexander Nevsky, that when he had a choice to compromise with the was it the Protestants, uh, no, Catholics. the Catholics, the Catholics said, if you convert to Catholicism with all your people, then we won't attack you. We'll leave you. And Saint Alexander said, better dead than to give up our faith. But people today say no will send them to the heretical schools. And in the, and in the Ukraine, in Western Ukraine, where, those, where a lot of those Russians became, or Ukrainians became Catholic, they became Catholic because of the Catholic schools. Because the Orthodox didn't have proper schools, the Catholics came along and said to the Orthodox parents, 
You can come to our schools for free and we'll educate your children. The Russians and Ukrainians sent them there, sent them to those schools, and slowly, slowly they converted them. But some will say, oh, my child goes to a Catholic school, it's not converted, it still comes to church. You don't know what's going on inside. There are some priests today that are out there who went to Catholic schools and Protestant schools when they were young. And they're Orthodox priests. And you say, see, they're Orthodox. They didn't become that. But their spirit is heretical. They are the ecumenists of today, a lot of those people. They are hostile to orthodoxy, even if they are preaching the gospel and they're preaching on orthodoxy, inside they're hostile. And I'll tell you why they're hostile, because they say things like, oh, the saint said that, but he didn't know. Like there's one, one silly priest which said um, that the star of Bethlehem, I remember someone went to a sermon, that the star of Bethlehem was Haley's Comet. It was a comment. But you want to say to him, like it said that the star moved, moved, moved there, stood on top where Christ was born. And we know that it was an angel that was guiding the Magi. And he was saying, uh, no, it's a comment. So the, this person had a copy from, from St. Philot, the interpretation of the gospel, a holy father, and gave it to him and said, here, Father, because, you know, you said that. And he goes, oh, what century did he live in? Meaning, uh, he lived, I think, 11th, 12th century, meaning they never had scientific research in those days, but now we know, because we're more modern now, we know. Anyway, um, you know that every talk, we've got to speak about the heretical schools, And I'm going to dedicate a talk on that. There's plenty of examples. When the Greeks of the Byzantine Empire were faced with two choices, they knew that the Turks were trying to attack Constantinople and their army wasn't big enough. And they went and asked the Pope, can you send your army and help us? And the Pope says, yes, yes, I'll send them, but you've got to convert. And some of the Greeks did. They converted and they, they did a, a false union. They said, now we're together. And as we know, St. Mark of Ephesus says, I'm not signing. And then this expression was, was formed. Better to be dominated by the turban of the Turk, the Turks that were the turban, rather than the mitre of the Pope. They prefer to be under the Turks than to be under the Catholics. Why? The Turks will try to force you to become Muslim, but they won't interfere in your religion, meaning they don't try and change dogmas, etc. They'll leave you alone in that. The Turks never, never, never once did they interfere in the teachings of the Church, of the Orthodox Church. But the Catholics will not stop until they make you say the creed their way, until you believe their way. And the Orthodox knew, better to suffer with the Turks because we'll keep our Orthodoxy, the Church pure, the teachings, rather 
than to get the Catholics to come over. And that's what happened. Some parts of Europe, 500 years they had the Turks. Greece, 500 years in the top part, the northern part, I think they were freed in 1821. The others up the top, Serbia and all them, they were freed in 19, somewhere around there, 100 years later. And what happened? What did we come out? We came out of that horrible bondage of four to 500 years. We came out of that with our faith pure, with our orthodoxy intact. They didn't affect us at all. Yes, some were converted and some, um, and there were many martyrs. But our faith was pure. And today, we ignore all that and we send our kids to Protestant and Catholic schools to listen to heretical teachings day in and day out. And remember Constantinople, I've said this before, I'll say it again just in case some of you weren't here. In 1453, when the Turks were outside with these big cannons and they were, and they were um, bombarding the walls to try and get in, they couldn't get in. They couldn't break through those walls of Constantinople, present Istanbul. And the Orthodox were holding. And in the city there was Catholics too. But they were separate. But suddenly what possessed them, some of the Greeks, they said, let us join prayer together with the Catholics so God can hear our prayers and deliver us from the Turks. So they got together, and not all of them, but some bishops and priests got together with the Catholics and they served liturgy together. Straight after they served liturgy together, the Turks broke through the walls and took over Constantinople. And it turned out later on that the Turkish leader said, we were ready to leave. We said enough, we can't, we, we can't break Constantinople. But then suddenly we decided to give it one more go. And that thought that he had was that the, just after they served the liturgy together. But yet we send our kids to the Catholic schools so they can be in the liturgy, in the mass as they call it. Number eight, abortion. When a parent has an abortion, we learnt last talk, that the children who survive, who obviously the parents didn't abort them, they will torment their parents and they themselves will be tormented. That's what Father John Christiankin says, that the children will suffer in life and take revenge upon you, the parents, for the murdered little brothers or sisters with such affliction that you will not be able to bear it. People think, oh, I had an abortion, and there's no consequences. There are consequences. Obviously, if you repent, you confess, the consequences are less. Exactly how much less, I don't know. But there are consequences. So that's a form of abuse, because it says he, that not only will you be tormented, but your children will be tormented. That's abuse. Now... Pride, disobedience and ego. When parents are proud, disobedient and egotistical, that is a form of abuse. Then you say, how? How is that? 
Well, I'll let St. Paisius answer it. Quote, many times children suffer because of their parents' pride. So when we are proud, not because we have just a proud thought, but when we have the pride and we're not fighting it, then this affects the children. The spiritual state of the parents affect the children. That's why in the last talk I spoke about spiritual transfer. People think that that doesn't exist. It does exist. Number 10, absence of or no prayer. A little bit of prayer, a little of thing. That's abusive. Why? Because you leave the children unprotected to be tormented by demons. That's why parents pray to protect their children. As some of you do do prayers for your children, you'll notice there it talks about to protect my child from the demons and etc. So when you don't pray or when you do a little bit of weak prayer, then you're leaving your children vulnerable and that's a form of abuse. Number 11, evil eye. Someone can do the evil eye on your children, they will suffer, but that's not your fault. But it's your fault if you're not praying to, for them to be protected or take them to church so they can be protected or take them to the priest so the priest can read prayers over them. But also, a parent can give the evil eye to their child if the parent's got some bad feelings about the child and the child can get sick. Or if the parent's giving the evil eye to someone else, then as a punishment, their own children can get sick. That's why we've got to be careful and not everyone has the ability to do the evil eye, but some people do have that ability. Magic. Parents that go to magicians for any reason bring down on their children afflictions. When you go to a magician, you bring it onto your children. You bring bad onto your children. Like, for example, a child could be, uh, a boy might be mentally ill or something's wrong with him. And the mother says, I'll go to the magician. My child is sick, there's something wrong. So they go to the magician. The magician does and says, I'll go give it some of this stuff, what I tell you or whatever. Then the child becomes suicidal. Becomes worse, and I know this. They become worse. You don't go. That's, that is abusive. Number... 13, bad, oh yeah, talk 7, 58, 59, especially 58, 59. I go through a lot of these things about that. And be careful because not everything's magic. Some people think everything's magic, like even when the, when the wind blows, it's, it's someone's done magic on you. It's not. Number 13, bad thoughts. I went through that last time. Lustful thoughts, when you've got sexual thoughts about other people. Jealousy, hate wishing bad on people, pleasure on people's downfalls and sufferings. All that is bad, and that can affect your children. Number 14, pornography. When one or two parents are indulging in pornography, that can affect your children. That's, that can also be traumatic for the children because your sin affects the child. And remember that quote that I said. It comes because we, I read it last time that um, God punishes the children for the sin of the parents to even third and fourth generations. So yes, God can do that if we don't repent and struggle. Our sins 
affect those around us, and especially if you're parents. As a priest, my sins can affect those who I have, who I'm taking care of. The same way as a bishop. A bishop's sin can affect his flock. A priest of a parish, his sins can affect his parish. An abbess's sins can affect her nuns. An abbot's sins can affect his spiritual children. The governor of a country's sins can affect his people. There are spiritual consequences to all these type of things that we say. Adultery. If parents are committing adultery, that can bring catastrophe for their children. Unnatural sins which I've spoken about, unnatural sins. You know what I'm talking about. I've spoken about it too many times. and They're, they're, they're the unnatural sins, not just ordinary sexual intercourse, but all the other stuff which is unnatural. Unrepentance. When parents, well, we know that if parents are proud, that they can affect their children, but unrepentance means when parents refuse to repent of their sins. That can affect their children. The next three I'm going to be doing talks on which is childcare, early schooling, when you try and take your children early to school, like four and a half, uh, school in general can affect children. Now, the school in general, uh, there can be some situations which is traumatic for the child, and if parents aren't keeping an eye on them, they can affect their children. But the early schooling, when you're sending the child too early, and childcare do affect children, and even psychologists are coming out and saying that. Not a lot of them, but they are starting to come out and say. Childcare, for example, no childcare up to two. They're saying. I say it's even more. But the first two, they're saying. Early schooling. Children that have gone to school at, say, four and a half, compared to children that have gone to school in other countries at six and seven, those younger children that have gone to school, they don't succeed. That's been shown, that they don't have success because they're too young, they can't cope, and that's why the best schooling system, if you're going to send your kids to school, would be somewhere like in um, is it Sweden? No, not Sweden, the other country. Finland. I think it's Finland. Seven years old, they send their kids to school. No academic. For the first year, structured play, playing, running around, playing, activities. And then when they're eight years old, they start the academics. They do the best in the whole world. While countries like Australia, America, England, where they're sending the children to school really young, like four and a half, where they start to have to learn their name when they can't even hold a pen, uh, those children are not. They have learning problems. And I used to teach children with disabilities, and I wish I knew then. I should have got a list and did a bit of an experiment ask the parents when did their children start school. I'll, I'll probably find that most of them started when they were very young. Okay, so that's it for that. Then we'll come back and we will continue on with different parenting styles and uh, things like that. So have a break. When I say about um, prayers for the children. Firstly, this book is good, The Orthodox Christian Parenting. I've mentioned that before, except for the reference of makeup and the going to Catholic schools and things like that. But everything else is good. It's got a lot of quotes from the fathers. And basically, um, I like it because that's what I do, is exactly 
just find all the references I can on the upbringing of children from different saints and put them all together. And that's what they did, but they've also got some opinions from parents. Some of those opinions are good, and the ones about sending kids to Catholic schools or Protestant schools isn't good, and the one about letting girls, young girls wear makeup isn't good. I don't know why they put that in there, but everything else is good in that book. And canon to the Lord for a sick child, even if you've got a even if your children are teenagers, it's still good to read that because it's still your child. And, uh, and parents that have done that have seen miracles of their children, even when they've got psychological problems or attitude problems or behavioural problems, not just for physical sicknesses, but you can, you can do it for that as well. And the other one, the, the Akathos to the Nurture of Children, is excellent as well. Those two books... The canon for a sick child and the nurture of children can be bought from, or from here, but also for those overseas, from the St. Paisios Monastery in Arizona, is it or something? Is it Arizona? Yeah. Now, in the overprotection section above, St. Paisios used the word hover, and I said I'm going to explain that to you. He used the word hover to describe how parents force and suffocate their children and that this type of parenting does not help the children. It's interesting that what he's describing is actually what psychologists call helicopter parenting. But what does hovering mean? Like a helicopter. The helicopter can hover. It can stay still in the, in the air and just hover. And um, drones can hover as well. But in general, aeroplanes can't hover. They go forward. But these... Things like um, drones and helicopters, they can fl like float in the air. And they use that word, it's, it's interesting that St. Paisos used that word, and that, that's how the psychologists call it. They call it helicopter parents, in which they're always hovering over their children. They're always over their children, supervising, protecting them and things like that. Uh, Okay, Aer uh, yeah, you know, in Australia we say aeroplanes, over in America they say airplanes, both are correct. So, aeroplanes or airplanes, whatever, don't hover. Helicopter parenting is one of the many parenting styles that exist today. So before I explain helicopter parenting, I'll just quickly go through the main parenting styles. The first one is called authoritarian. And this is characterised by parents who have high demands, high expectations, expect blind obedience, they're very demanding, apply pressure to their children, very strict, inflexible, very little feedback. In other words, they don't really speak to their children. They don't, they don't let their children tell them what they feel and they don't really speak to them much. And there's no hardly no nurturing. Nurturing is where you are helping the child to grow up emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. There's, no, there's hardly no nurturing. And they use a word called unresponsive. And this means that the parents are insensitive to the children's emotional and developmental needs. They have them like animals, in other words. They don't care if the child's upset. Most of the time they don't even notice it. They don't know if the child's sad, upset, depressed, whether the child's scared and they've got anxiety. They don't feel these things. They don't care. All they care about is that the child's to be obedient, 
etc. Mistakes tend to be punished harshly by this type of parenting, and when feedback does occur, it's often negative. So they don't give much feedback, but when they do, it's negative. You didn't do that right, I don't like that, you're doing this wrong, etc. This style generally leads to children who are obedient, obviously because they're scared, and capable because they're forced to perform. And a lot of them do achieve academically, but they rank lower in happiness, social competence, which means they can't socialise properly, and they are very low in their emotional development and self-esteem. I remember when I used to serve some parishes and there was a father, he had around three kids, and the three kids would sit next to him on the floor, like in the Russian church, say. And they would sit there. And if there's time to stand, he would just click his fingers, they would stand. And when they could sit, and they were beaten, they just would go up and down. I used to call them the Alsatians. They were like, or Labradors, they were like the blind dogs or some uh, guard dogs, Alsatians, where you can train them. He had them like dogs. And they were obedient to him. But to the mother, they would rip her apart, they would muck around, jump all over the place, etc. That's not proper. He liked it because he was probably proud that everyone would see that his children were obedient to him. But later on, each one of those children became sick. So that's called authoritarian parenting. Then there's another one called authoritative or authoritative. Is that right? Did I say it right? I don't know why that word, I just I find it really hard for some reason. It's not a word that I ever used. So this type of style is characterised by reasonable demands, warm and caring parents, high responsiveness. In other words, the parents care about what the child feels and all their needs and developmental needs. They're firm, clear rules, and they value independence. They want the children to learn to become independent. While these parents might have high expectations for their children, they also give their children the resources and support they need to succeed. So they help them. This, this style tends to result in children who are happy, capable, and successful. They have higher academic performance, more self-esteem, better social skills, less mental illness, and lower delinquency. Delinquency is when they go out of control. And it's interesting that that one, this particular parenting style, is very close to what we've learnt over the last four talks from the saints, where they say to be firm, loving, affectionate, look at the emotional needs of the children, etc. Obviously, as being from a psychology book, they don't talk about prayer and grace, which I mentioned last time, but this is very close to an orthodox parenting style. The first one is very much against what the saints were talking about, this strictness, this horrible spirit of punishing and not having care for the children, not guiding the children. 
The next one is permissive, or what we say indulgent parenting style. So these parents are warm and responsive, loving and emotionally available, giving in often to their children's demands, so they give in, they're lenient with the children, few or no rules, no consequences, no punishments. Uh, they seem more like a friend than a parent. This style often results in children who rank low in happiness. These children are usually egocentric. They have poor social skills. They don't know how to get on with people. Find it difficult to control their emotions. They find it difficult to control their energy. They find it difficult to control their behaviour. They find it difficult to focus. They, they have impulsive behaviour. These children are more likely to experience problems with authority and tend to perform poorly in school and encounter more problems in relationships. So these are parents who are permissive. Yes, they can be nice to the kids, friendly to the child, um, but no rules, no guidance, proper guidance. That's like... Partly spiritual, but not thing. Yes, the parents are warm, responsive, loving, but let the children do whatever they want. That's not a proper parenting style. That's why the saints we heard in the last four talks, they speak about guiding the children. The second last one is called uninvolved. This is sometimes referred to as neglectful parenting. These parents set few or no demands and limits on their children, provide little monitoring and are generally detached and uninvolved. They don't care about their children's feelings, they're indifferent to their children, dismissive. Discipline is minimal to non-existent. This style ranks lowest across all the other ones of the lives of children. These children tend to have low self-esteem they're less competent than their peers, than children of the same age. They are very anxious, they are insecure, they get upset easy, angry, they're sad, they're worried. This, this child does not trust that their needs will be met. They lack self-control, they have impulsive behaviour, they usually turn out delinquents, drug addicts, they usually abuse alcohol and they commit suicide. So... That is what's called uninvolved. Now today, which one's most, most... I think a lot of parents are neglectful. Sometimes they run through. Sometimes a, a person can be really strict. Sometimes nurturing. And sometimes uninvolved. So these are not 100% groups that you can say, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that. Usually some parents in one day can go through the whole three. But it's a good guide for us to understand things. And the last one is what's called helicopter parenting. So what's helicopter parenting? And this is what I'm going to spend some time on this one because it's to do with what St. Porphyrius and Pesos said where parents are overprotective, where parents hover. Um, helicopter parents earn this interesting title because they seem to 
hover over their children, driven by worry, anxiety and fear. Very close to what Porfirios said, St. Porfirios, because St. Porfirios used the word worry, anxiety, but he used the word care. This one's saying worry, anxiety and fear, pretty much the same. They try to control their children's lives in order to protect or rescue them from harmful situations, difficult situations, disappointments or mistakes. These parents don't want their children to make mistakes because, you know, it's uncomfortable for them. They don't want their children to be disappointed. These parents often see danger and threats that do not exist or are extremely rare. These parents have a hard time letting go, are constantly interfering, they tr distrust their children's ability to take care of themselves, they won't let their children make their own mistakes or at least acknowledge their mistakes so they can learn from them. This is very bad, that, because a lot of children today are brought up where the parents never actually brought to their attention that they're making mistakes. And those ones turn out to be really, really disabled for the rest of their life. Children need to say, to learn to say, okay, I made a mistake and acknowledge it. But that doesn't happen today a lot, a lot of times. There's the opposite where parents are constantly saying, you made a mistake, you made a mistake. That's another madness. So there's two extremes where you don't want your children to know that they're making mistakes or they're failing, or the other one is that uh, you're constantly telling them you're a failure, you made a mistake, you're worthless, whatever. Helicopter parents are determined their children will never feel uncomfortable or feel pain, so they try to swoop in to do everything for them, wrapping them in cotton wool. Children that are coddled will not be able to survive in this world. Now, the word coddled means children that are overprotected and pampered. So these parents are like birds, like swoop. That's what it means, a swoop. So the... So as soon as they see their child's finding some difficulty, in they swoop to save the child. And that's called helicopter parenting. They don't want their child to have any suffering at all. Like the father with the box of the, with, with the waters. He wanted to swoop in to take the box from the son instead of letting the son to, to do it himself. And the psychologists say children that are coddled will not be able to survive in this world. Children that are overprotected, pampered to that extent. Then I found an article, or someone found it for me, in The Australian, July 19th, 2014, and it was called Free Range Children of the 1960s Enjoyed a More Carefree Childhood Than Today's Generation of Coddled Kids. So back in the 60s, 70s, before computers, before this rubbish, children were allowed to run around, play in the street, whatever, and things like that, and they call them free-range children. Like chickens, free-range chickens. So what's free-range? Free-range is a method of farming where the animals, for at least part of the day, can roam around freely outside, rather than being confined in an enclosure for 24 hours a day. Free-range systems usually offer the opportunity for extensive movement and sunlight, which, is, which the animals can't do when they're constantly inside. Chickens, cows, pigs. So free-range chickens, they can, they're in the sun, 
and they can move, run around. Free-range pigs the same, free-range cows the same, and that's why people and the people think the RSPCA, for example, the cruelty of animals, think that that system where they're, where they're confined in cages, for example, the chickens, it's cruel. And they're using the same word that our children should be free-range children. They should be allowed to run around, move, that movement's important, get sun and run around. In the article, the person who's writing it says that the Australian National Children's Commissioner is urging parents to give kids more time and space to play on their own, especially outdoors. The commissioner said, quote, children today are more supervised, more timetabled, and are bombarded with things to think about and manage, which is a consequence of the internet world. Because of the internet, parents can uh, keep these timetables for their children, um, check on their children, which we're going to see as, as, we, as we go on more. Pet children are more confined because they're under computers continually. So they're not allowed, or they're not running around. I think the free-range eggs that we buy, those chickens do more exercise than today's children, actually. Let's see what else he says, the, the, or she, I think it's the commissioners or she. Children need, quote, to wonder, wonder, move, you know, explore, uh, go around, wonder and explore the world on their own. While the helicopter parents wouldn't allow that. They need to be able to discover things without someone being on their back all the time. And even to, without the parent having to be there and go, okay, now that is, so the child, like the child wants to just go into the garden, say, and touch the flower. It doesn't need the parent to be behind the back saying, that's a flower and it's got a root system where the water goes up and it, it, what happens is it goes through a process called photosynthesis and they've got the sun and it produces the food in the thing and then it lets out, it, it, it absorbs the carbon dioxide and lets out the oxygen. And to me, I find that claustrophobic. I do, I find that. Uh, the child, that can come later on. But when it's young, just let it touch the plant, let it feel, let it run around, let it walk, discover. That's how it develops. I was once somewhere and I asked the child, um, have you heard about the Titanic? So the child was around 10, say. Have you heard about the Titanic? They go, yes. I go, okay, what do you know about the Titanic? And he was starting to say something to me, the child. And then the, 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 the helicopter next to him um, said, said blah, 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 like you're trying to tell the child what to say. And then the child said, all right, all right, all right. That means that he's gone beyond helicopter. He's not just hovering. His blades are chopping at the child. <laughs> chopping at the child. There's nothing hardly left for the child. 
So you can have a helicopter where it's above and there, you know, like the police have them have those speakers. Stop where you are, you know. They're, they're, so that's what they that's helicopter parenting one one. There's that's one style. Then there's the other one which goes down and then the child gets caught up in the propeller and there's nothing left of the child. So obviously it says here children need to wander and explore the world on their own. We should protect kids, but we shouldn't protect them to the point we obstruct their healthy development. When a child's not allowed to run around and play and discover, they don't develop. Now listen to this part. Obviously, we have to make sure they are safe, but optimal brain development comes with unstructured, unsupervised exploration of the world through play. Optimal. The best way the brain can develop is if they're allowed to have unstructured, unsupervised exploration of the world through play without you being there. Next to the child, continue. There's times where you'll do that as well, do things together. But let the child discover a bit. See, when I went to school and all of you there, so we had these, when we were in maybe first class, they had some um, aids, teaching aids. Blocks, say cubic blocks, to, to, so you can teach the child later on cubic centimetres and things like that. What I, what I used to do is I used to first give the blocks and let them do whatever they want so they can get used to putting the blocks together, experiment. So what teachers do is some of these kids have never touched these things before. So they give it to them and let's say high school where you teach them volume, like this cubic centimetres, and we say, okay, now, and they start. Each cube is a cubic centimetre. And then we put the cubic centimetres together and that makes volume. Volume is the amount of space, blah, 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 like that. Now, that child is not only going to turn off from what you're saying, but it's going to find the blocks repulsive. See? Because it doesn't give a chance for the child to experiment by itself first to see how it's put together instead of you being there. So when I was in school, for example, they were explaining how to use a compass... I wasn't allowed to first use the compass just to experiment myself, relaxed, draw a circle. So they say, you do a five centimetre radius, what's a radius, who knows, back when you're young, and then you do this and you do that, and then you do the line there, then you do the arc, and then you do on this. By that time, I hated the compass and I hated the, the, um, the maths. Even I became a maths teacher later on, but the, um, I didn't like it because it was too structured. That's what they're saying. Don't have too much structure. Let them explore on their own. There's something to be said, said the, said the commissioner, for going out and exhausting yourself. It's important for the child to run, to play, get tired. And it's not going to get tired in front of the internet or playing video games. And if you remember, as I said before, what St. Paisu said in the previous talk, he says... Children need to run and play in order to grow naturally and progress. He knew exactly. Did he study psychology books? No. He was enlightened. Back to the article. Children spend more time in front of a screen in breach of national health guidelines. 
for children than in active play or sport. And we know that, that's true. And whose fault that? The parents. That's why I advise parents, as much as you can, don't let the child use a computer at all when they're young, at all. As many years you can get it, as much as you can. If they're homeschooled, that's even better. Sometimes you can go to you until they're about eight, nine, ten maybe. No need for it. It makes them addictive, it makes them stupid anyway. But if you go to school, you pretty much lost them because now they want children to use computers when they're in kindergarten. What for, I don't know. Even in the, um, in the, in the daycare centres now, they're using computer games to occupy them because the teachers are too lazy to work out activities. Many children today do not enjoy the same freedom children did in the 1970s and 80s or the 60s. A mother said a mother said that she wants her children, aged eight and five, to experience the same sort of free-range childhood she enjoyed growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And some of you who are old would know that we used to do much more when we were younger than the children of today. The, today, the children just on those stupid things, those um, iPads, whatever they call those things. And they even, they even say the doctors now that they're developing hunchbacks. From being on there all the time like that, they're, they're actually developing hunchbacks. Which if they can't get a job, at least they can get a job ringing the bell like the hunchback did. <laughs> the hunchback of, what's it, Notre Dame. Yeah. Is that him already ringing the bell? <laughs> We shouldn't have the, computer, the, the phones on. So what's going on? Wow. That's worth a wow. <laughs> okay. Some common helicopter parenting behaviours. We ready now? Let's go through them quickly. Doing things for children they're capable of doing for themselves. Drive them everywhere. Of course, when they're young, of course, but when they get a bit older, there's got to be some independence there. Doing all their housework and, requiring, and not requiring children to do chores, jobs around the house. Constantly checking on children by phone calls, emails or text. Some even track their movements using GPS trackers. <laughs> you know that. That's true. Um, secretly following them and watching them. What are they doing? There was one, I left that out. I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have left that out. I thought it was too much. But I thought, I, I, can't, I can't say it, but I've, now looking at it, there are some extreme parents. They even use private eyes. They hire people to uh, spy on their children. Um, their older children. Secretly following them and watching them, we said that. Not allowing them to go anywhere alone. Forbidding anything perceived to be potentially dangerous, such as sports. Some parents won't let their children play sports because they're scared. Riding a bike, like the other father that I said, or play on the playground. They're scared they'll get injured. Constantly warning about stranger danger and not allowing children to go on activities with friends or have friends because they're always scared that something's going to happen to them. And there is some truth to that. It is worse than before. 
children are more vulnerable to being molested today than decades ago, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Not allowing children to resolve conflicts uh, with others. So for even when they're young, they're fighting over a toy, they just run in to solve the problem without teaching the children how to resolve conflict and how to help them to, you know, to share or whatever. They've got to run in and say, not allowing children to solve their own problems. The reason why I said that about the molesting and the dangers today is because of antidepressant drugs. Today, a lot of people use them. And one thing about those drugs, which you need to know, I found it in a... Um, some, they're these SSRI drugs, these are antidepressant. He goes, the, perhaps the best known psychological side effects of these drugs is amotivational syndrome. The syndrome is characterised by apathy, disinhibited behaviour and demotivation. All psychoactive drugs, including antidepressants, are known to blunt our emotional responses to some extent. I'm not going to sit down and explain that because I want to do a whole talk on medications and things like that later on. But I'm going to stick on one part, the disinhibited behaviour. What's that? People that are on these drugs tend to lack the restraint for negative behaviour. That means that where a lot of us might have a feeling to do something, we don't because we know it's wrong. So we've got what's called this inhibition. We know it's wrong. When people are on antidepressants, they do things that they wouldn't normally do. That's why they always put the warnings that these drugs can cause suicide. These drugs can make people violent. I believe that a lot of people who fall into pornography did so after being on these drugs because they don't have that restraint. They commit adultery. They can commit unnatural acts. They can do criminal things that they wouldn't normally do. And I've spoken to people on them and they've told me that they do have a tendency to want to do things and do things that they didn't before because they were scared or they didn't think it was right. So, for example, someone who's got homosexual thoughts, they go on those drugs, they go and do it. Someone who has a thought to commit adultery, they're on the drugs, their guards are down, they fall. So we've got to be careful of that. And because of that, people that have desires to harm children, because they're on that, they do it. Where before, it would be some people that are really sick, today it's just gone out of control. There's pedophiles in the schools, there's pedophiles in the police, there's pedophiles in the court system, there's pedophiles in the church, there's pedophiles everywhere. Now, years ago, a lot of people could have had those thoughts, but they kept it, they refrained. On the drugs, people find it hard to refrain. So that's why I believe that 
it is today difficult and you've got to help your children to make them be aware of problems, but teach them schools, not just be fear all the time, but as they grow older, to teach them, to help them to develop skills to deal with people and to, not, and to know when they're in danger and things like that. But not when they're eight, nine and just let them roam around everywhere um, like um, going even to sleepovers. How do you know where they're going? How do you know who's going to come to the house? So you allow your child to go to a sleepover and maybe the brothers got problems. The big brother. And when I say big brother, so your child might be eight. The big brother of the child that they're going to, the friend could be eight, but his brother could be 12. They, they're, they're molesting now because they see things on the internet. Or the big brother might be 15, or the uncle might come over. You don't know, you're not there. You've got to supervise your children. That's not um, helicopter parenting, that's logical. People just let them go everywhere without being supervised. There's, there's ways to give your children independence, but those things are not really safe. Anyway, we have to do more about that in a future talk. There's a lot of things we have to talk about, so that's that. Now, how overprotectiveness hurts both children and parents. As parents, we earnestly want to keep our children out of harm's way and safe. Sometimes this desire can be an unhealthy obsession that not only harms our children, but actually harms us too. Meaning us being parents. So not only does it damage your children, it damages your, you, the, the parent itself. All this anxiety, hypervigilance and paranoia takes a toll on the physical and mental health of parents. Overprotective parents usually are a psychological and physical mess because they're constantly in anxiety. Anxiety is a killer. Children may resent their parents and rebel against them because they do not give them the opportunity to properly develop. So children that have been overprotected, after a while they will rebel. Most of them will rebel unless they're really damaged and they're just like zombies. But, but in general, they will rebel. If parents are anxious and fearful, their children are likely to pick up these traits. So uh, if parents or parent is uh, got a lot of anxiety, the children will develop the same anxiety. And so that when they become parents, they'll probably be the same. And we said last time what St. Porfirio said, that mothers can transmit anxiety, fear and stress to their children even without showing what they feel. And we called this last time spiritual transfer. So the mother might have anxiety within her, doesn't show it to the child, doesn't say anything to the child, but it's transferred spiritually to the child and the child can become anxious as well. But when the mother shows it, like, be careful, watch out, watch it, then that for sure the child will um, be damaged. And he also said, St. Porfirios, that women can transmit sorrow, pain, fear, anxiety to her embryo. 
So when a woman's pregnant and she has a lot of these things, she can transmit that to the child. Now, according to experts, child rearing should focus on the following. Let's see how much of it is spiritual. Think for themselves. So parents have to help their child, children, think for themselves. Don't do all the thinking for them. Become self-reliant, independent. In other words, relying on their own powers and resources rather than those of the others. How about God? So we say we want the child to be independent so they can not rely on others. But we as Orthodox Christians know that we rely on God for everything. And that's not mentioned in psychology. What did Christ say? Without me, you can do nothing. But in the world, I can do everything I want because I'm powerful, I'm, I'm God myself. So see how psychology sometimes contradicts the church's teachings. We want to teach the children to become self-confident, realistic confidence in their own judgment, self-respect, a feeling of trust in their own abilities, qualities and judgments. For example, a helicopter parent will not allow an older child to cross the street on their own. A balanced parent will teach their children how to interpret the lights, look both ways before crossing the street, and to always be watchful for potential dangers. So the helicopter parent constantly does not let the child develop any skills, learn things. After a while, the child has to know how to cross the street. And I don't know how old that is. I think there's something to do with the brain that they can't kind of... They can't judge the, the, the cars coming... There's a certain age where children... Are, but you can learn all that type of thing. But we need to teach children skills. If I tell you the example, you say it's extreme. This is how parents are. So when I was young and we were coming back from our shop at Bondi there and then I was at the train station with my mother. I was around eight, nine. And there was a mother. She had two children. And the children, I think, were my age, maybe a bit younger. And, they were, and she had them next to her. As soon as the child would move away a bit, she would start screaming. She wanted to, and she would grab the child and put it again close. The children were not allowed to move away from her. Now, you might say, that's really extreme. And it is, isn't it? Only one thing. What she was doing was understandable she was blind and the children were her guide and on top of that she, she couldn't see if the children would be kidnapped or something so in other words some parents today are to the too extreme and not even blind like those poor kids obviously they're, they're going to have problems because of the of that restriction but she was completely blind. She had no blind dog. Her kids were her guide. And every time the child would go away, she didn't know if that child would get grabbed. And so she would grab him. Now, when you're not blind and you don't let your children do anything, that's pretty bad. We have to help our children to, to develop self-knowledge, that is, understanding of themselves and their own motives or character. Self-knowledge is spiritual. St. Nectarius said, if you don't have self-knowledge, you can't get close to God. The philosophers knew, the Greek philosophers knew, self-knowledge is very important 
to develop as a person. And today, people do not have much self-knowledge, if at all, especially children, because they haven't developed properly with their computers, etc., with not playing in the backyard or outside. Those children don't develop, and therefore, one of the things how they don't develop is they don't have knowledge about themselves, which is a sign of trauma, by the way. Develop social skills, that is, understand social rules to be able to communicate with others, to get along with other people. Children that are constantly on the computers or they don't interact much with other children won't learn those things. Develop coping skills, that is, cope with stress, failure and challenging situations. Children don't learn those things, especially if they've got helicopter parents as well. Develop problem-solving abilities. For example, if parents can ask children to come up with solutions to everyday challenges. This boosts their kids' confidence in their ability to handle difficult problems in their lives. But we also teach the children, I add to that, prayer, asking for God's enlightenment to help you solve problems. But in general, children don't have, they don't develop problem-solving abilities. And help them explore the world, like the backyard and other things, help them explore the world. Don't be on them, explore it for them. I remember one, one person said to me, my father was so controlling that it was as if, I felt it's as if he was trying to get into my body to possess me, which is extreme, but that's what he said. Of course, when he died, he was happy. So what can parents do to ensure their children are safe and secure? In our hyper-vigilant culture, it is difficult to give children the freedom that we enjoyed when we were growing up, meaning older people can't give their children exactly the freedom that we had when we were young because of the, there's a lot of danger now. The internet people there, that, what do they call those people? Internet, um, the ones that are trying to molest the children, what do they call internet? Predators and all those stuff. There's this everywhere. There's dangers everywhere. And with the, and with the drugs now and the antidepressants, etc., it's become really bad. So obviously, gone are the days where perhaps you could allow your children when they're really young. Like when I was young, four, five, I used to play in the street. Sometimes you can do that a little bit when there's a big group of children, but can be dangerous as well. He says that you're not going to be able to give them the same freedom, but parents should analyse themselves and see why do they feel driven to overparent their, their children? Why are they overprotective? And there's two reasons which I found. First reason, sometimes parents are driven to this behaviour because they, did not, they do not want their kids to suffer the hurts that they suffered in childhood. Parents may have deep wounds that have not healed. So, for example, if a parent was molested when they were young, they don't want their child to be molested, so they're, they're very careful. If the, child, if the parent was abused in other ways, they don't want the child to be abused. If the parent was, um, there's another example, like the Greeks, when they came over, they suffered the war, they suffered poverty, they suffered from hunger. So, therefore, they didn't want their children to suffer poverty or hunger, so they gave them everything. Plenty of food, plenty of um, whatever they wanted, so they won't experience 
what they experienced when they were in Greece. So sometimes these things are driving parents to be overprotective. And still, even though you might have suffered when you were young, you don't have to let your child suffer by being overprotective with them. Sometimes parents need help um, to get over their own problems and stop transferring their problems onto their children. The second reason, um, not only are these parents overprotective because they fear for their children's safety, but there's another reason too. They attach their own self-worth and identify to the accomplishments and success of the children. What does that mean? It means that they want their children to succeed because it's a reflection of them. If my children succeed academically, then that means that I'm good as well. It, makes, it gives them ego, like sports. Parents might have been good at sports when they're young, or maybe they wanted to be good, so they push their children to be good, to get to, so they can have what they didn't have. University, a lot of parents that came from the villages, they weren't educated, they want their children to go to university because they didn't go to university. And it gives them a good feeling that their children went to university. It gives them, it kind of feeds their ego a bit too. It's different that you want your children to go to university for their benefit, but we've got to look how much are we doing, are we pushing our children because for ourselves or is it for them? Marriage. Children to marry someone who doesn't resemble their own spouse. So, for example, a woman who's married a person that she's not happy with, she doesn't want her daughter or her son to marry a spouse, a someone who's bad. So they're on them trying to push them to marry someone who's opposite to their own spouse. Sad, isn't it? And they want someone to be rich, someone to be handsome, or someone to be pretty, someone to be successful, like a lawyer or a doctor. I even heard the other day that some people actually said they went to the Sydney University not as much to study to get a degree. They, they got their degree, but they went there so they can find, it was women, they went there to find a successful man, like a lawyer or a doctor or something like that, so they could marry them. Now, I'm sure they were influenced by their parents. Now, maybe some parents are not very good-looking and they want their children to have what they couldn't have, so they want to make them good-looking and make them go in even into beauty contests with little children. Or they might want their children to be talented, singing, dancing. All this, a lot of times, is a reflection of themselves, what they wish they had, and they put onto their children. That's not healthy. I'm going to read you an example of a young girl. We go through it, and I'm at the end I'm going to ask you, which style do you think it is? Which parenting style? Is it a helicopter? Is it the authoritarian? Is it the authoritative? Is it the this, uh, neglectful? So there was a young girl who was brought up in a house in which the parents would fight continually. There was no harmony, love and understanding between the parents. Her mother preferred to do everything herself, cook, clean, tidy her room, didn't really teach her much, couldn't be bothered to wait. So, you know, wait and say, OK, now you set the table or you cut the carrots. She couldn't be bothered with all that. And um, she just did it herself. And she didn't allow her daughter to do much. 
should be negative and redo the things that her daughter did. If she did allow her child, then she'll do, them, she'll do it again after she's done it. When the mother would complain that she doesn't help around the house, the girl would answer, what's the point? You do it again anyway. Later, the girl became lazy, very negative towards the parents. And as a teenager, she refused to do any chores, even for herself, wash her own clothes, clean her own room. The mother had to make her appointments, apply for jobs for her. She had no real interest in progressing in life, the daughter. The parents were continuing on her back, do this, do that, get a job, you know, whatever, study. She would react aggressively, so aggressively against her parents that she attacked the mother one day, so she had to leave home because she was dangerous. After that, the mother would go to her house where she went. She was living in like a boarding house and she would go and clean her, house, clean her room. She would clean her clothes. Then the girl, even though she was working, she had some money, but she, forgot, she would forget to pay the rent. So the mother would pay the rent for her. So that girl turned out psychologically disturbed and immature. Which parenting style do you think that was? Which one? Say it again. Neglectful, some say. Hmm? Authoritarian. I say it's everything except for the one that's loving. It's basically everything. There's neglect there, there's helicopter there, there's, you know, when she was dying, doing all the papers for her and all that, trying to get a job. There was the authoritarian, the strictness, the negativity. It was everything. So I see how I said that some parents have a number of styles. What's the result? Abuse, trauma, weak-willed, let's see if I can remember. What did St. Porphyrius say? Weak-willed, lethargic and unsuccessful in life. And St. Paisios said, you're emotionally abusing the child um, yeah. So that's extreme, but I think a lot of parents do do similar things, maybe lesser, maybe more. Let's go back to St. Paisios now. I've done the helicopter parenting, and now we're going to go on to pressuring children. Even though there's a lot of, in that, what I talked about, the helicopter parent. Helicopter parent is a parent that doesn't really apply pressure. A helicopter parent is one who does everything for the child. Doesn't want the child to have pressure. Always running after the child, doing everything for the child. That's helicopter parenting. And that's what the saints explained, overprotected. All the other thing was just all parenting styles I went through. But the first thing we spoke about from the saints was overprotective parenting, now we're going to go to the pressuring of children, which is like the opposite. St. Paisios said the following, some parents are just too overbearing and put a lot of pressure upon their children, particularly in front of others. It's as though they are dealing with a mule and trying to force it to move ahead by using a stick. They hold the reins tightly and then they tell them, walk freely. Then the children come to the point of beating their own parents. A lot in there. He used the word overbearing parents. This is different to helicopter. Overbearing, applying a lot of pressure on their children, even in front of others. 
And he says it's like their child's a mule. Because, you know, mules are stubborn. And so, therefore, you know, you hit them with the stick so they can move. And he says that's what parents do. They, they treat their child like mules and they hold the reins tightly. And then later on they say, walk freely. How can the child walk freely after you've put so much pressure on it and things like that? He goes, then the children come to the point of beating their own parents. When I was young, there was an example of a friend of my mother's who came from her village. So I think what happened there was uh, her child was old, 18, 19, 20, I don't know. Nag, 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 and all the time, pressure, 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 pressure all the time. And so um, she had a fight with him. She was this. Anyway, later on, from what I heard, I was young, but she went to the corner shop after the fight. And she said to the man, my son killed me. And then she dropped on the ground and there was a knife in her because the son stabbed her. And these situations happen a lot. And a lot of them happen. Yes, some of them are drug-fueled. That's true. He wasn't from drugs. He was just nag, nag, on top, on top, on top, all the time. And that's why the saint's saying, then the children come to the point of beating their own parents because they're overbearing and put, apply too much pressure on their children. Now, that's St. Paisus. Let's see what St. Porfirio says. A few days ago, a mother came here in a state of despair because of her son's repeated failures in the university entrance exams. He had been an excellent pupil in elementary, primary school, what we say here, and all the way through high school. But in the end, he failed repeatedly and showed indifference and had strange reactions. Now, when parents are strict, sometimes they can keep their children pretty good. Usually, uh, you know, they push them and they might do well. Like we said before, that parents are uh, authoritarians. They could make their children do well at school because they're always on them, they'll force them to do homework. But as they get older and that forcing doesn't work anymore because they're older, then they don't do well. And he couldn't even get into university. He tried, failed a few times. And it said that he... He showed indifference and had strange reactions. I think the reaction means he behaved, maybe his attitude and his um, behaviour, emotional problems, who knows. I said to the mother, it's your fault, there's another one, it's your fault. Even though you're an educated woman, how else did you expect the boy to react? Then he goes on, pressure, 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 all these years, make sure you're top of the class, don't let us down, get yourself an important position in society. Now he's thrown in the towel, he's given up, he doesn't want anything, stop this pressure and overprotection and you'll see that the boy will regain his equilibrium. He'll make progress once you leave him free. I like that part. And when he says pressure, 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 when St. Porphyrus is saying that, he's saying it with, I believe, that he's saying it with in suffering, like he felt the pressure on the child. 
Like pressure, 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 leave him alone. And it says, once you leave him free, he'll progress. Now, my parents were the opposite. I received no encouragement in my academics at all. My father never taught me to do homework. My mother never taught me to do homework, never taught me to study, didn't tell me anything. That's the other extreme. However, whatever I did, I did because I wanted to do it. So today, as an adult, I feel that what I do is what I want to do, not what I feel others want me to do, etc. Now, the kids that, are, that were pressured and now they're now adults, when you speak to them, I notice that you say to them, what do you want to do? And they're sizing you up, thinking, what does he want me to do? What does the priest want me to do? And they're trying to find the answer that will make me happy. These are confused people. These are adults. Don't even know what they want because they were pressured all the time. I don't think we should be neglectful. My parents had the shop. Okay, we were neglected a lot. That's what happens when you have the shop. Seven days a week, you know, you're not going to have much guidance for your children. But then the other one is personally, I'm a mess from that, but I'd rather be that than to be, than to have my parents that were on me all the time. I've noticed that the ones whose parents were on them and pressured them all the time are worse than me. Psychologically, emotionally, they're, it's like, even I feel, I feel sorry for them. They're just horrible in the sense of what they are suffering now as adults. And that's why he's saying that. So mother rang me up and she said, um, my child won't do his maths. And I said, okay, if you encourage him, yes. Okay, tell him this, this, and this. I gave her some ideas of what to say to the child. Yes, the child goes, yes, yes, yes. Still didn't touch it. And then tried again, tried again. I said, okay, what we'll do now is just say to him, there's the book, you want to do it? Only, only 10 years old. You want to do it, do it. You don't, you don't. You pay the consequences. You pay the consequences. It's up to you. You can't force them. They go, no, no, you've got to force them. You can't force them. You can encourage them. You can try. You can use some discipline. But if it's not working, which in this case it didn't, you've got to leave them. But he's going to fail school, he's not going to go well, he's not going to get a good job. He's got to learn. So say the child goes to school, he goes back to school, then he'll get in trouble for not doing the homework. That's one thing. So he has to pay the consequence. He goes on detention or whatever it is, the consequences of that. He has to pay for those consequences. You don't sit down and do the mass for them. And then... You say to the child, if you want my help, you ask me, I'll help you. But I'm not going to force you anymore. That's it, finished. Then I said to the mother, and you can do prayers for the child that God enlightened him to wake up to himself if he wants to do well at school. Another mother, the same thing, on the child, on the child, do this, do that. The child didn't want to do it. I said leave him. And at the end, he failed school altogether and he just got a factory job. But he was intellectually 
mild, like slow. That's probably why he couldn't do it. So there's all different reasons why uh, things, sometimes it's laziness, etc. If they're intelligent, even if they fail school, later on they'll come around again and they'll go back and they'll, and they'll do well when they mature more. Sometimes children just don't click. I didn't even like school until I was in fifth class and then later on again when I was in year 10 and there's all different different times. Depends on your teachers, depends on circumstances, a lot of things, but at least I wasn't forced. So the first mother, she left the child and then did the prayers and lo and behold, he went and got the book and did it himself. You see? Freedom is important. You can discipline to a certain extent. So, as a teacher, if I had five classes, whatever it was, so about 150 children altogether, not all at once, obviously, each one of those are individuals. Some kids, they do something wrong, you can look at them, that's it, finished. That's enough. You got them for the whole year. They can get just scared from that a bit and they will be him. Another kid, you might have to reprimand him in front of the kids and say, I don't want you to do that. That might work. Another child, you might have to do detention. Another child, you might have to use the parent to bring the parent up. Another child, you might have to just encourage them, be nice to them. Another child, you might have to tell them off. Everyone's different and you've got to use different styles for everyone until you find the right way. You can't have formulas. That's what I thought. In, when you start teaching, you have formulas. Probably you as parents thought there's a formula, set formula, which is for all children. It's not for all children. All children are different. You've got to use different ways. Some children, you can say, look, if you don't do well in your, in your maths, you won't be able to get a job in, say, whatever he wants to do that needs maths. And that child might take that and do it. Another child doesn't listen. So you use another technique. You might try punishment, take away some privileges, take away some activities, use different things. Sometimes that doesn't even work. What are you going to do, take away activities forever? Then you've got to use other methods. And sometimes you've just got to let them go all together and until they mature and you just keep on praying for them. Um, you have to ask God for enlightenment to help you to know how to deal with your children. Like a priest, when he's dealing with spiritual children, he has to ask God for enlightenment to know how to deal with the person that he's helping. The parents do the same, because parents have a, like a priesthood. See, when a man gets ordained, he receives the grace of ordination. That grace helps him to serve liturgy and do the mysteries, but as well... It gives him the gift to teach people. It gives him the gift to help people with their problems, etc. Now, parents are also given a form of ordination, one can say. I'm using that word loosely. When, when a man and a woman get married and the priest is blessing them, they receive the grace, like a priest receives the grace when the bishop puts his hand on them and he's ordained. The parents, the man and woman, receive the grace for their marriage as to man and woman, but also the grace to be able to bring up children. That grace can be lost later on because of sins and neglect, but it's there. If you're married orthodox, it's there. All you have to do is reactivate that 
grace that you were given by asking God, please give me the grace to help me bring up my children. Help me to know what to say. So there was a mother that I was dealing with and she just didn't know what to say to her children at all. She was just terrible. And then one day she said to me, I had a problem and I dealt with them and I said, this, this, this and this. I go, that's excellent. That's excellent. I said, that one, I give you 100 out of 100. That's excellent. You actually said things so wonderfully. How did you do that? Usually you don't even know what to say. I go, did you pray? She goes, yes, I did. I did a canon of a sick child. I prayed to God to help me to know what to say, and it just all came out. And that's from a person who's illiterate, doesn't, wasn't educated much. So it's there, all we've got to do is tap in. A lot of times parents say to me, oh, I did the canon and, and my children calmed down. There was one guy who said to me, um, I was coming home from work and I had so much anxiety that I'm going to have to go home and the children will be screaming and shouting and this and that. That can't take it. I feel like my nerves are going to break. And um, he said, because uh, he lived close to a church, I don't know where, it was somewhere in America. He said he lived close to a church. He didn't have to go there. But he said he was so much in fear of going home because he was scared he might hit the children or he was going to have a breakdown. So he went to the church. It was closed. He went at the back of the church somewhere and he got the, the, the canon or one of those books there. Um, and he did that service. He was desperate. And he went home, and the children were beautiful. Now, he experienced a miracle, and that was a miracle. And what happened after that? The children began to muck around again. What do you think he did? He would obviously do the cannon again. But he didn't. Month after month after month after month. That woman who I said was enlightened to know what to say to the children, she saw it was a miracle. She said, I, there's no way I could say those things to the children. And the children were responsive, they listened to me. What after that? Month after month after month went past where she didn't do that prayer once again. Or a couple. The husband's like gone crazy a bit. And the woman does anacathis for the married for married couples. And she says to me, he changed. He changed. I go, of course he changed. Because you prayed. Because that's what the grace has been given. The grace has been given to the husband and wife so that when one of the spouses is down and the other one does prayers, that the grace overflows from that spouse to the other spouse to help them because they're united, because they're one. Special grace. And she says, it's a miracle. I go, of course it's a miracle. And after that, what happened? Month after month after month, the husband went back to being a bit silly. She didn't do it again. The question is, why do these people refuse to do it? When they saw the result, why do you think they, they don't do it? The demons don't want them to do it. The demons know the value of prayer. They know how powerful it is. 
and they won't let them do it, and therefore they have to force themselves, they have to struggle to do it. Then there's laziness, then there's forgetfulness, and then there's stupidity. That's the main one. And it's there. And this happens all the time. I see it all the time. Parents have rang up and said, look, I've got problems with my husband or my wife. Say my wife. I've got problems with my wife. And they said, can you please do some prayers? I said, okay, we'll commemorate them in the liturgy. They ring up again. How's it going? Pretty much the same or a little bit better. I go, okay. Mm, we did a lot of prayers. They go, didn't, he's the same. Or a little bit improved, but still pretty bad. I said, okay. So we continued to commemorate. Then they might ring up again. I go, how's it going now? They go, oh, he's, she's changed. I might get the sexes mixed up, I think. He, she, I know, it doesn't matter. The, the, the spouse changed. And I go, wonder why they changed if before we did the commemorations, nothing's more powerful than the prayers of the liturgy, and he didn't hardly change, or she didn't hardly change. How come now they changed? So I asked the man, did you do some prayers? They said, yes, I did Bacchus or something. I didn't, yeah. I said, that's what happened. When the prayer is combined with the prayers of the monastery or the priest or the whatever, it's very powerful when they're doing something. So that person experienced that. And what happened? Months and months and months went past, forgot all about it, never asked again properly until it's really bad. Or prayers for children, people ring up. Nothing happens, you know, you do your prayers, you do prayers for them, you commemorate them in liturgy, read special prayers, little bit of improvement, not much. Then suddenly they ring up, they go, oh, they've changed. Thank you for the prayers. I go, we just did the same prayers as before. I go, did you do prayers? And they say, yes. I said, that's it. Because you did the prayers, together with the prayers in the liturgy, that's the miracle. And that's why St. Paisios always demanded the parents do some sacrifice, do some prayers, do something themselves, not just go and run to monasteries or run to prison and say, please pray for my husband, pray for my wife, pray for my children. No, you want, that's why I say now to a lot of people, if you want something, you've got to do something. That's what St. Paisius even got to the point of saying to a man whose, whose child was sick, you want, you want to get help? He goes, yes. Okay, do you fast? He goes, no, I don't fast. He didn't say to him, you've got to fast. He says, do you smoke? He says, yeah, I smoke. He goes, okay, well, if you want your child to get better, stop smoking. So he stopped smoking. So he did something. He made a sacrifice. And the child got better. Then he came back again to St. Paisius and said, the child's sick again. And St. Paisius said, did you start smoking again? He goes, yes. He goes, well, you know what to do. You see, so parents need not just to ring up or write an email or, or um, you know, commemorate and say, you know, go to the service, like in the Russian church, where you write the names, okay, and you put your children's names in, and that's it. No, the biggest help is the liturgy. Even when you're hoping you're dead, it says there, the Holy Fathers say, you commemorate them at the liturgy and you give alms to the poor and you do your own personal prayer. 
It, it combines with the liturgy, prayers, and it becomes powerful. So when you ask, when you've got problems with your spouses, when you've got problems with your children, you ask for prayers from the monastery, from the parish priest or whatever, at the same time you must do something, which is you can give money to the poor, you can do your own prayers, and you can have them commemorated. You need to do all of them at, at the same time. It doesn't work. I've noticed that now after 25 years, I've noticed when the parents just ask for prayers, if they're ignorant, they're not much in the church, God will help them because they don't know much. But after a while, you've got to start telling them, listen, you've got to do something. You have to do something if you want to help. You cannot do anything at all. In any case, in spiritual matters, children are helped mainly by the example we set, not by force. So when spiritual matters for children, you want to help them, you've got to be a good example. If you're not a good example, you're not going to, you can't help them by force. In other words, parents must work on their own virtues, their own passions, be good examples for their children, and that will help a child spiritually. So you can't tell a child you have to not lie. God doesn't want us to lie. If the child's hearing you on the phone saying to someone, I can't come because I'm sick, when the child knows you're not sick. So the child's learning, well, why is my mother or father telling me not to lie if they're lying? Things like that. Those things are important. We need to be examples and not force children to do the commandments but let the child learn the commandments through example and through the grace of God that you give them when you pray for them. It is not sufficient for... This is St. Porphyrios. It's not sufficient for parents to be pious. They must not oppress the children in order to make them good by force. In other words, parents cannot make their children good by crushing them or treating them harshly or forcing them, oppressing them. We may turn our children away from Christ when we pursue things of our religion with egotism. Where parents want their children to be good out of ego. Children cannot endure coercion, says St. Porphyrios. Children can't take being forced. Don't compel them to come with you to church. You can say, whoever wants to come with me now can come or they can come later. Leave God to speak to their souls. Obviously, you can't leave a child home when they're under 12. That's the law, isn't it? So you've got to bring them. Now, if they're going completely berserk or they don't want at all that to go, well, one of you might have to stay home. You, I mean, and then there's obviously a problem there. You start doing prayers, asking for prayers to help soften the child to start coming to you. But when the child starts getting older, they don't want to come. They don't come. Like I told the mother the other day, the child says, oh, do I have to fast on, um, on Wednesday? Well, I don't know what it was. And I said to um, the mother, how old is he? So she said, around 12, say. And I said, okay. You tell him, he's old enough to say, you want to fast, you fast. You don't want to fast, it's up to you. Between you and your conscience, between you and God, it's between you and the priest that you confess to. And that's it. And you leave them. Usually when you do that, they'll fast. 
in the past when people have telephoned, and even now, or people have come to me and said, Father, I've really got bad temptations. I feel like I'm going to fall into a sexual sin. What do I say? I don't say to them, don't do it, don't do it. It's bad, you're going to go to hell. No. I say to them, that's your decision. You know the commandments. I can't. Look, I've got to struggle for my own, against my own passion. You've got to struggle for you. It's your soul. You want to be saved? You've got to do it because you want to do it. You give them freedom. And usually I have a 99% success rate, pretty much. But as soon as you start saying, don't do it, don't do it, I think it reminds them of their parents. And what do they do? They, they'll, go, they'll go and fall. That's called coercion. You must respect, give them the freedom to make their own decisions, especially once they get a bit older. Even children above, you know, like when they start getting eight, nine, ten, depends on the maturity, depends how much control you've got over them, you've got to give them some freedom to say, you've got to choose yourself what you're doing. And then you pray for them behind their back, you don't tell them, and that can help them as well. But you're not on them all the time, it doesn't work. So if someone said, someone said to me, I'm, I'm thinking to leave the church, that's your decision. Have you thought about it? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know the repercussions? Do you know what's happening? It's up to you. They expect you to say, don't do it, don't do it. No, you can't do it. No. I used to do that when I was younger as a priest. I don't do it anymore. It doesn't work. The, the other way, I used to have a 99% failure rate just amount. Now, it's better when you say it like that. And you pray for them. And you do prayers, you do you commemorate them. That God, as it says here, that God gives them the grace to change their mind. At the end of the day, it's God that helps them, not you. What he says here, leave God to speak to their souls. And there's more examples in the next talk of this where one, one man was, on, was going out coming back late, and St. Paul says, it's nothing to him. And then he told her what to do, which I'll tell you in the next talk. Don't coerce, don't force, don't pressure. Don't force your children to fast. Don't force your children to pray. Don't force your children to go to confession. And all those type of things. Don't force them. The reason why the children of some pious parents, religious parents, become rebellious when they grow up and reject the church and everything connected with it and go off to seek satisfaction elsewhere is because of this pressure which they feel from their supposed good parents. So the parents think they're being good. I'm making my child go to church. I make my child do uh, prayers because I want them to be good. And the saint is saying, that pressure that you're doing is making them go away from the church. The so-called pious parents who were anxious to make good Christians of their children with their human love, 
pressurise their children and produce the opposite result. Instead of making spiritual children, they made children who hated the church. The children are pressurised when they are young and when they reach the age of 16, 17 and 18 years old, they end up the opposite of what was intended. By way of reaction to their parents, they start to mix with bad company, use bad language, etc. I like the way he said 16, 17. Usually you can keep them up to about that age. But once that happens, it's very difficult. Sometimes if they're really squashed, you might get a few more years of, of them listening to you when deep down they hate you. You might get a few more years. Actually, I prefer the rebellious ones. <gasps> What's that? What, what, what are you saying now? It's another madness. No, it's not, because when they're rebelling, at least they've got the guts to speak up and say, stop, I don't want that, while the other ones are squashed like this. You know, they're squashed, and they're all disturbed. Even St. Paisius says them about that the ones that are a little bit more, we use the word zoiri, which is, the ones that are a little bit more, what's the um, hmm? Lively. Lively, the ones that are a bit more lively. Now, he says you can, that you can get more spiritual out of them, but not much out of the ones that are crushed. So, yes, it's bad. So if a child says, um, I'll get lost, I don't want to do that. That's bad. But it's better than the child just doing it and inside they're completely crushed. And the parents say, oh, look at my child, how obedient it is. It's obedient, like the other guy with the Alsatians, the Labradors in the church, they're obedient because they're crushed. But after a while, they'll crush you or they'll, or they'll stab you or whatever else they might do. Sometimes they're crushed all their life. That's why you see 50-year-old people who, when they're around their parents, who might be 80, the 50-year-old is still, like, scared as soon as the father speaks. What is that? That's terrible. And he says that these parents used to make their children Christians human love, not spiritual love, human love. And in the next talk... I'm going to explain human love compared to spiritual love. Human love is more pathological. And a pathological means sick. As a priest, I fall into that sometimes. Sometimes you might say to someone, oh, no, do that, do that. And then you, you notice that you are applying pressure. That happens. It's human. You do it. It's a, it slips in a lot of times. But what I notice when I do that, I get sick. I actually get sick. That's when I realise this is not going well. No, I can't do that. And as soon as I say to, free, as soon as I say to them, this is what you do, it's up to you, leave them free, and you pray for them, I feel better. But as soon as I start nagging in any way, etc., that's why you might say, oh, you haven't got any children um, so therefore you don't know what it's like to bring up children. I do know. 
I do know. I'm not just reading things. I've, I've experienced things. I do know. It's exactly the same thing. A priest can be overprotective, a priest can be nagging, a priest can be pressuring, a priest... So you experience all those things. Sometimes it takes a lot of years until you finally find what's the right way. And even then you're learning continually. So when a parent says, my child doesn't listen to me, they're rebelling, I know that because I've had people who they don't listen and they're rebelling in the spiritual way, plus the fact that I was taught at school, but that to me is hardly anything. The most important is the experience that you get from dealing with spiritual children, meaning older people as well. It's the same thing, like when you see a person who believes their thoughts, then you know that the demons are going to trick them into something bad, and then you can go into a, like a panic and start saying, no, be careful with the demons there, or you can tell them nicely, leave them alone, like I tell parents, leave them alone, pray for them. That has the best results. Years ago, I had this person who wouldn't listen at all. Wouldn't listen, continually arguing, 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 arguing. It was just too much all the time. Fighting, arguing, fighting, arguing. And I said, should I, should I let her go? Maybe she should go to someone else because it's not working. And I said, maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe then she'll be lost altogether. I didn't know what I was doing because I was a young priest and I didn't know what to do. And I was commemorating her in the liturgy and things like that. And, um, and then after many years of problems and problems with her, I realised, yes, I'm commemorating, but not with the heart. So yes, I was trying to correct her. Yes, I was trying to help her, but not in a proper way. Like a parent can say, oh, I read the, the prayer for children. Yes, but did you read it with your heart specifically for your child's problem? No. When you pray for your spouse, did you read it from your heart? No. We just do it generally. Oh, God, help me to love my husband and to this. You know, we read it. Priests do the same. They read the prayers in the liturgy. You can read it, but it's not in the heart got to have the heart to correspond to what you're reading. So one day, I realised my mistake and I said, I'm going to pray for this person, but in a different way. I'm going to do it with my heart instead of just reading the prayers. I just thought, okay, you put the Petrahili on, you pray, the liturgy, that's it. No, with the heart. So did it with the heart, changed. Started to repent and started to... Um, change immediately and that's why I'm saying that whether you don't have to be a biological parent to know about these matters uh, with the heart that's the, that's the thing I learnt that when I read St John of Cronstant when he says that when you commemorate those who ask for prayers you have to do it with your heart. And I said, wow, I don't think I do that. I don't think I do that in that same way. And that's where we learn that that's what you have to do as parents, as husbands, as wives, etc. St. Paisio says, parents should do 
what a good gardener does when he plants a small tree. He ties it gently to a strong stake, meaning like a stick, to keep it from growing crooked and from being harmed. When the wind blows a little to the right or a little bit to the left, then he waters it regularly, taking care of it so that its branches grow. So what St. Basil is saying is a child is like a plant. Like a plant in the beginning needs guidance. So you put a stick there and you tie it gently, not too tight. And then it helps the plant grow straight and proper and it's protected by the winds and things like that. And that's how children are. You should uh, tie them, and it says, gently, like restrain them, guide them, help them gently. Oftentimes, over-concerned parents want to tie their children with wire. However, they should tie them gently in place without hurting them. They should try to help their children to consider the good as a necessity. They must explain what is good in a good way with love and pain. This is important. That's another thing that I learned. When I was a young priest and I would help someone, I would be more harsh and say what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is bad, this you shouldn't be doing that, which is what a lot of parents do. But then, as time went on and I read more and kind of thought about it more, I realised that you should say it with love and pain. What does that mean? It means that when you're correcting someone, you show them that you're concerned for them because you love them, that you fear for their salvation, that you care about them, etc. And that is effective. So as parents, or as a husband to his wife, or a wife to the husband, so a wife's complaining about her husband. So the wife doesn't say... Um, to the husband, you're lazy, what you're doing is bad or whatever, say. And then what you say to the, to the wife is to say, go up and say, I'm concerned about the way, you, the way you are. I'm really worried about you. I care for your soul. What you're doing is not good. In that way, that has better results. And the opposite, the husband to the wife. And the same with the children. You don't say... What you're doing is bad. You say, oh, he's going to explain it now. He says, they must explain what is good in a good way with love and pain. I remember a mother whose eyes would, would fill with tears when she saw the children doing something wrong, when they were misbehaving. This is what the advice is. Ready now? And she would say with pain in her voice, no, my sweet child. Through her good example, she taught them to struggle with joy to avoid the temptations of life, to not be easily influenced by troubles, but to face them with prayer and trust in God. So she would say to them, don't do that, it's no good, but in a loving way, in a kind way, in a concerned way. Not just saying, that's bad, which is what a lot of people do. I know, I used to do it too a lot of times, still do at times. But the saints didn't have that. But even they had to learn. So I'm sure they also, as they were developing, they would use harshness and later on with spiritual development, their own spiritual progress, they learned that that doesn't work. 
Saint Nicodemus says when you correct a fellow Christian, even a friend, you, you correct them with love and say to them, I'm really concerned for you. I'm scared for you. That's different. Usually they react better. But when you say to them, what you're doing is bad, then the other person with ego is going to react. But it's very rare that a person is going to react if you speak to them with pain and love, with concern. So that's the secret with the children and with your spouses. So, St. Paiso says, God is obligated to take care of children. That's a big statement. God is obligated to take care of children. In other words, it's God's duty to take care of children. When a child is baptised, God sends an angel for the child's protection. So then, the child is protected by God, by the guardian angel and by the parents. The guardian angel is always by the child helping. The more a child grows and matures, the more the parents are relieved of their duties and responsibilities. Should the parents die... God from on high and from close by and also the guardian angel from close by continue always to protect the child. Religious parents don't even think about the guardian angel. There's actually a prayer that parents can do for their children. They are praying to the guardian angel of the child. O holy angel, guardian of my children, you say the names, keep under your protection my children from demonic arrows, from the eyes of the seducer, the devil, and preserve their hearts in angelic purity. Amin, amin, amin. Now, what I thought about when I read this prayer, I go, most Christians don't even pray to their own guardian angel. Most Orthodox Christians do not have a relationship with their guardian angel. So how would the parents have the faith to pray to the child's guardian angel if they don't even have the faith to pray to their own guardian angel. Now, there are services to the guardian angel. They're in the prayer books. The Jordanville book, the Shanley Transfiguration prayer book. There's an akathist to the guardian angel and there's a canon to the guardian angel. All baptised Orthodox Christians have a guardian angel. Parents need, or all people, but let's talk about parents, need to develop a relationship with their guardian angel. And you do this by doing those canon and akathis. They will help you because it gives you the understanding of how to pray to them. In those books, or when you keep on reading those prayers, you'll get the idea of how and what the guardian angel does for you, how to pray to him, etc., once you develop your own relationship with the guardian angel, then you'll be able to pray to your child's guardian angel, asking the child's guardian angel to help your children. So start doing those canons and, and that. Everyone needs to be praying to their guardian angel every day. Every day. You don't have to do the accolades and canons every day, but I'm just telling you to do those so you get the idea. And after that, you can just do a short prayer 
and asking your guardian angel to help you in your spiritual life and then you'll be able to ask for the child's guardian angel to help them. St. Paisu says, Nowadays, one rarely meets parents with confidence in God because now, just as the children's confidence in their parents has diminished, so has the parents' confidence in God diminished. Like children don't trust their parents, in the same way parents don't trust God. Many parents have often been heard to say, why should our child take up the wrong way of life? We go to church. But they do not offer the screwdriver to Christ to tighten up some of the screws in their children. They want to do everything by themselves. This is very important. I know you're tired, some of you now, but what's the screwdriver? Are our children machines to use screwdrivers? What does he mean by that? He means when parents see faults in their children, when they see their children misbehaving, when they see their children disobedient, when they see their children stubborn, when they see the passions in their children, they get what's called a screwdriver. In other words, they, they use their own ability to start to try and fix those problems up. Screwdrivers to fix, fix things. You fix things with a screwdriver. So it's the saint saying, you're using your ability to fix these problems. But you don't ask God to help you fix the problems. And that's why there's a lot of problems today. And what St. Paisu is saying is give the screwdriver to God. Say to him, help me fix up these problems in the children. You don't wait till they're teenagers and on drugs, etc. You start fixing up the problems from young. That's what I tell parents all the time. When the child's young, even, as I said, seven, eight, the child's got passions, I will tell the parent, you will explain to the child that that is a passion and they have to work on it. People think that's just crazy. You wouldn't say that. So there was one child that was like, um, used to do like fits of anger. Fits of anger for like if it was told something, something that he didn't like, he used to go into fits of anger. And I said to the father, he doesn't, he's not even aware of what he's doing. He's completely unaware that it's even a problem. Because a lot of parents just say, oh, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is wrong. But they don't actually sit down and explain it to the child. And the child doesn't listen. So I said, sit down with the child and tell him that this is a passion, explain to him what a passion is, and explain to him that he has to make an effort to stop these fits of anger. In the beginning, the child didn't understand what the parent was talking about. And I said to him, uh, give him some punishments. Tell him that he's not going to commune. He has to make an effort to fight. A lot of times par parents let their children commune, commune, commune when they're making no efforts with their passions, when that's the whole aim of a Christian life. I said, tell him he can't commune, which he used to love doing, because he's not, he's not acknowledging that he's got a problem and he's not doing anything about the problem. We don't expect him to stop straight away. That's stupid. He's not going to stop straight. It's a passion. Just like we can't stop our passions. But we are obliged to struggle with the passion. So this went on for a while 
and he wasn't he didn't commune for some for I think four or five weeks. So I started having doubts. I go, maybe this is not working. And as soon as I had that thought, lo and behold, what did the child say? You ready for it? I thought it was very well, very, very, very interesting. He says, because I said to the father, say to him, that's, you know, we're born with passions. Obviously, you were born with this passion and you've got to deal with it. And the child said, out of the blue, he says, if I was born with the passion, that means that it's not my fault. Because God made me this way. Now, that's interesting because that means he started to realise that this passion is beyond him. He started to say, I can't stop it. That's the first step. He said, I can't stop the passion. Then I said to the father to say, just tell him to struggle and whenever he fails to repent, to say sorry to you or to the mother every time he does these things, so he started doing that, slowly, 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 slowly. And one day I met the child, this is years ago, and one day I met the child and the child says, can I ask you something? I go, what? Can you pray for me to help me stop this passion? That's a 10-year-old. I don't even get adults doing that. Adults don't even do that. Adults have no idea that they even got passions. They don't ask for any help. They don't pray to God for it. And I said, you pray and we'll do prayers, etc. And then the child became conscious that he's got a passion, etc. That child could have ended up being 15, 16, 17, 18, probably in jail, and still not understand that he's got a problem. And that's why it's important to bring out, if the child's lying all the time, you say, you are lying, it's no good, it's no good for you to lie, it's against the commandments, and you speak to them with love, and you explain it to them, and sometimes you use little punishments at times, etc., 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 until the child starts to struggle with that and to teach the child when you fall, you repent and to say it in confession if they go into confession, which they should be, and to ask for prayers to get help. That's spiritual life. That's what you want. So ask God to get the screwdriver and to tighten up the screws in their children. Ask him to do it, but instead the parents want to do it all themselves and they make a mess. And even though there is God who protects the children as well as the guardian angel who himself stands constantly by to protect them, the parents agonise over them until they become sick themselves over the overprotection. They always worry about their children and they get sick instead of saying to God, can you please help me? No humility. And although they are faithful people, in other words, even though they go to church, they act in their life as if there's no God. They act in their life as if there's no guardian angel for their children. In which case, they actually obstruct divine intervention. They, through their actions, the parents, stop God's grace working on their children through their unbelief. So they, these parents go to communion, they confess, they might fast, they read spiritual books, etc., and pray. And yet, deep inside, they act with their children as if there's no God. What's going to happen to the child? What's going to happen? No prayer. No ask for prayers. Ask 
God to help in the problem. And I think they're spiritual. And then he says at the end, St. Paisios, instead, they must become humble and ask for God's help and the good God will protect the children. Instead, I could read it a hundred times, but we'll get too late. Instead, they must become humble and ask for God's help and the good God will protect the children. Sometimes at school I used to use punishments which was right in lines. You know that ones? I must be good or something like that. I used to use it when I was a teacher. I must not talk in class. And you say to them, do it 50 times. So you come at lunchtime, when you finish the 50, or 25 I think, because it usually takes around half of lunch, because by law you've got to let them out because they have to go to the toilet and all that. So you say, um, and eat their lunch. So I said, 25 lines, I must not talk in class. And they wrote it quickly so they can leave. Why did I mention that? What's it got to do with what I'm saying? I think that I should give lines to some parents. Write a hundred times, I must become humble and ask for God's help and the good God will protect my children. Just write it out a hundred times until it gets into the brain. Simple like that. When parents act as if there's no God, they actually obstruct divine intervention. They obstruct God to work in the lives of their children. Nowadays, St. Paisa says, young and old alike live as if they're even a mental institution, which is why great patience and much prayer are so necessary. Instead, some parents drive their children crazy like a clock that is little damaged or faulty. The parents overwind it a little and the springs break. So children like clocks. And he says if you wind them too much, they'll break. If you're on them too much, they'll break. Instead, some parents drive their children crazy, as we said that. Then we said, uh, discernment is essential in such matters. Discernment is a virtue. Discernment is above the virtue of love. Discernment is what the saints had. Discernment is what elders had. They knew what's right and what's wrong for each situation. They had that gift from God. Parents have to acquire that gift and God will give it to them. He's obliged to give it to them and he will give it to them if they ask with humility for discernment to know how to act with their children, how to speak to their children, how to punish their children, what to do with their children. Discernment. That is the biggest thing today. There were some saints that were holy, but they didn't have the gift of discernment. I read once that there was a saint, he was holy, but if anyone went to him for guidance, he would lead them to hell, meaning that he didn't have the ability to guide them spiritually. It's a, it's a rare gift, discernment. That's why not all 
spiritual people have that gift. Elder Porfirios had it, Saint Paisios had it, uh, a lot of the Saint Nectaris, a lot of saints have that gift. A lot of spiritual fathers have that gift, but not all of them. That's why you go to some spiritual fathers and they give you wrong advice because they don't have that gift. And I think one of the main reasons they don't have it is because they don't ask for it. They trust in their own discernment, in their own guidance. Parents have the same problem. They trust in their own guidance. Now, some might say, you just said now that someone could be a saint and they haven't got the gift. I'm talking about, I'm talking about different with parents. God is more obliged to give the gift of discernment to parents than he is to a saint with no children. doesn't have to have it. But parents have to have it to bring up their children. Then, the question is, if they have to have it, why doesn't God give it to them? And why do we see parents so blind today? Blind as bats. And I shouldn't put the bats down because they use radar at least to get around. Unless an electrical wire gets in the way. So why don't parents have that gift? I just said it before. They don't ask for it. And some do ask for it, but with pride. They want that gift so they can say, wow, look at me, I was enlightened. No, no, that's not how it is. And pride does come in. We ask for discernment. Your parents ask for discernment to be able to help your children to be saved, to help them through life, not to make mistakes. That's why you ask for discernment. This is a matter of life and death, not a game. Some people think that spiritual life's a game. It's not a game. One child needs more winding, while another child needs less, like I said before about when I was in the school. Some you can punish more, some punish less. Parents will notice. Some children you can say to them, don't do that, they'll, they'll, they'll listen. Others, you've got to give them a couple of smacks sometimes or punishment things. Um, the poor children are exposed to all influences of the world. They hear all sorts of messages outside. Don't respect your parents, don't listen to the authorities, don't respect any, anything. Then, the, then when the mothers try to tighten the reins, they rebel even more. There's already a lot of temptations in the world. There's a lot of pressures on children today. Then if the parents come along and apply bad pressure, then the children can break, rebel, etc. That's why we say, give the screwdriver to God to fix your children. Doesn't mean that you sit and do nothing. It means that you will work with God. You work together. Obviously, God's help is more, but we need to put effort. You just can't sit there doing your hair, putting your makeup on, watching your sports if you're a man. Uh, looking at pornographies and doing all these, and then go into the room and say, God, take care of my children, and that's the end of it. That's not how it works. You've got to put effort in too.
Saint Paisius says, "This is why I advise mothers not to pressure their children, but to pressure themselves instead. Pray more fervently." Now, this is what I was saying before. To the, remember in the beginning, where some of you were a bit shocked, let him get fat, let him get sick, let them fail their exams. This is what I was trying to say. And this confirmed. It says, "Don't pressure them." Saint Peter says to parents, "Don't pressure your children. Pressure yourself." What does he mean by that? He's saying, "Pressure yourself. Force yourself to pray more, to pray more fervently, to pray with your heart." If parents always say no to their children for the most unimportant things, or even unfairly, then when something serious is happening, for example, when the child's about to pour gasoline on a fire. The child may not listen to the warning and suffer great harm. So, if you're saying no, 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 when something is serious, the child's not going to listen to you because it's just going to hear the same no, no, no. It's not going to take you. It's not going to take notice of you when it is serious. Saint Paisus continues later during adolescence, until they have gotten their children and educated and settled, the struggle of the parents will be greater. That's obvious. When the children are young, the problems are less. When they get into adolescence, that's when it's really difficult. The struggle of the parents will become greater. Parents should do all they can to help them at this age, and leave all that is beyond their power in the hands of God Almighty. When parents entrust their children to God, then God is obligated, like we said before, in another part, to help on matters which are not humanly possible. If, for example, the children are disobedient, the parents should entrust them to God and not try to pressure them in any way. This is adolescence now. When they're younger, you try. And we know today some children, most of them, have gone out of control. And what Saint Basilius is saying, exactly the same as what Saint Paul is saying, they didn't discuss these things. This is what all the saints say: is don't pressure them, don't force them. You can't force an adolescent child to be obedient to you. But what does he say to do? He says, leave the impossible to God. You do whatever is humanly possible, and leave the rest to God. And I love this: God is obligated to help on matters which are not humanly possible. That's the best prayer. That's the best, best prayer. My auntie in Greece, her son, my first cousin,、um, he had some pain. Went rushed into the hospital, and they said he's got like、um, a stone or、uh, something. Forgot what it was. Anyway, they said we are we are concerned. When we opened him up, what we're going to find? In other words, there was a chance that he might die. So what did she do? She ran into a ward, which was empty, a room, and she fell on her knees and she prayed to Saint Nectarius. And when they opened him up, they didn't find any damage at all, because she knew it was humanly impossible. Those prayers are the, are the best.
When your marriage is just about finished, you can see nothing. We've tried. We went to the priests. We asked for prayers. We went to marriage counselling. We tried, we tried. The marriage is over. That's the best type of prayer. Get on your knees and ask God, please save my marriage or save my child or whatever the situation is. They're the best prayers. Don't pressure them. The mother should say in her prayer the following, and this is what I love. Quote, My Lord, my children won't listen to me. I can't do anything to help them. Please take care of them. If that prayer is said on your knees with your heart, you will see miracles. That's, and I wrote there in brackets, this is the best prayer. When there's no human aid possible, nothing on earth can do anything, that's it. I think that's a good place to end with that prayer. Ask for prayers from the monasteries. Ask for prayers from your priest. Ask for prayers from elders. You, that's good. Ask prayers from saints. But above everything, unless you pray from your heart for the situation as well, don't expect big results. As I explained to you before, my experience is people ask for prayers, they don't work as much as when the person prays as well. Like that father that had to go behind the church because he didn't want to go home, he was desperate. He couldn't take it. That prayer that he did was from his heart, which is rare, and then later on he forgot about it. Or the woman that was being bashed by her husband who was a, had alcohol problems punching her in the head around 20 times. While she was holding her child, the baby. So it was fortunate that the baby didn't get killed. And yet, she went to the room and she prayed and he stopped drinking. You might say, oh, this is far-fetched. Far-fetched for you, not far-fetched in reality. If it's far-fetched, that means you're saying that God has no power. That means you're saying that God does not have power. And if you believe God's got no power, then you might as well be an atheist, which you're free to be. But we believe in God Almighty. We believe in a powerful God. We believe in a God that can do whatever he wants, whatever's good for our souls. And we believe that God is loving and that he will listen to a desperate prayer if it's done from the heart. Now, any questions for the last... Um... I have a question. Mm -hmm. About the yogurt. Oh, back to the yogurt, is it? Okay. There's the difference between someone's choice of not wanting the child's choice of not wanting the yogurt, or the... In that case, the child was being silly and spoiled. It's hard to know because sometimes maybe it had a, a dairy problem. It could have had a dairy problem. May, you know, but most of the time, children are stubborn. They're silly. Like, there was a child that he wouldn't have his soup if there was tomato skin in it. Now, what's the tomato skin going to do? Is that going to give him an allergic reaction? Is that going to make him have an anaphylactic shock? I don't think so. 
It was psychologica, as we say in Greek. It was psychological. Then you might say, but how do we know? I've said it before. Ask God for discernment. Remember the time when I went to the house? And the toddler was screaming. And I went to the kitchen and I saw the child was strapped up on the high chair. The face, the hair was everywhere. The face was actually dark. And I thought, the child possessed. What, what the demonic? What's wrong with that child? And I asked the um, parents, what's wrong? They said, oh, she won't eat. She won't eat. So they tried to give her something to eat and she whacked the food from the hand of the mother. She goes, oh, that does it. Just put her into bed like a rag doll. Throw her into the bed. Walk the plank. So off she goes, tries to throw her into the room and I said, no, no, bring her here. I had an idea. I said, you know what? That child looks like me. That's how I become sometimes. I'm like I'm crazy. When I haven't eaten properly because of sugars and things like that. That child looks like me. A crazy person. So, what I said to them was, boil some milk. And the mother was getting all bothered because it's like I was trying to catch her out which I wasn't I was concerned for the child and I said boil some milk because I had the idea that the milk will hit the system straight away the eat given something to eat has to chew and the child's like hysterical it's not gonna eat the food because it's, it's screaming but the milk is a bit easier to get into the stomach and for the child to get something straight away. So, um, they boiled the milk. I said to hold her and give her the milk. So they tried to put the milk in her hand and the child whacked it. And the mother proudly says, see, it's not hungry. Okay. I said, hold the child down. Hold the arms. Hold the arms, hold the feet, because she was going crazy. I said, and put the, the, the milk in the mouth, the bottle. So they put the milk in the, they put the bottle in her and the child started going, <laughs> just started drinking and drank, drank in about a minute and a half, the whole bottle. And the mother was going all disturbed because the child was hungry, but she always said the child's not hungry and wanted it to go and walk the plank and go in the room, right? And then, as soon as the child was just sucking on that bottle like, um, like, um, like crazy, and then when she finished the bottle, the child went and smiled. So it can't be demons, because demons aren't going to calm down with milk, are they? So it wasn't demonic, and it wasn't that she wasn't hungry, because she drank that milk in about one and a half minutes. And then she smiled. Then I said, now bring her food, because she's calmed down now. Bring the food and give it to her. So they brought the food with the mother's face was like she just drank vinegar. So they brought the, the, the food, so they ate the plate. And then I said, um, okay, now bring another plate. And the child ate the second plate of food. Two plates of food and a bottle of milk. 
So what it was is that the child was having like some type of sugar low or something was happening physiologically to the child. That's how I feel sometimes when I haven't eaten properly or something. Maybe some of you might have the same problem. I feel like I'm going crazy. And I can become aggressive and upset. I can shout for no reason. I get, I've got no, no patience. Now, the parents didn't know the child. But then I came along and I worked it out. Like another time I went to a house and the mother was there and the child was screaming and screaming and screaming. The baby was screaming. And she goes, I can't calm the child down. Something's wrong with it. And I had a thought. I think she's overdressed it. I said, take the clothes off and put on some light clothes. The child stopped. And there's a lot of examples like that. Now, the question is, you might say, but how do you know if you've got no children? Well, that comes back to what I said in the beginning. Some of you think, what would you know? You've got no children. So what's my answer to that? You work it out. I'm not going to tell you. The question is that these are parents and they didn't know that the... So she was going to put that child into um, the bed with no food. I'll give you a bit of an answer. If you have true concern for the child, God will help you to understand the child. But if you've got a face like her, like a sourpuss, then you're not going to get any help. Like she was proud. What she should have said to me was, oh, thank you, I just didn't work it out. I just, I just, I didn't know. Thank you for helping me. Now I know I just didn't understand that it, that it has that problem. No, no humility. And that's why we, what did Elder Pais just say? What was that problem? Anyway, tonight when you go home, you do 50 times in lines. And it's, what is it here? Let's have a look here quickly. We'll send it to you by email. Um, I must humble myself and ask for God's help and the good God will protect my children. So write that 50 times. Or 100 if you want. And pray for it. And say all the time, God, give me discernment. Help me to know. Help me to know what to do. Like another time I went to a house and the child was screaming. Screaming. I, they said, oh, I don't know what's wrong with her. Or him, whatever it was. I don't even remember. And, um, and I said, uh, uh, take all the clothes off, take it to the bath and, ba and, and bath it. And the child stopped. And it turned out that that parent hadn't bathed the child for weeks. Now, you say, how do I know? Did the child look dirty? I don't know. You have to ask God for help. You have to ask God for enlightenment to know what to do with your children, not only in those physical problems, physiological problems, the food, the overheating, the washing, etc., 
but to help the child to know what to do for the child's psychology, for the child's emotional development, for the child's spiritual development. This is very serious business. This is not just a joke. Instead, parents are on Facebook. Women are thinking of their next cosmetic surgery or their hair or their clothes or their jobs instead of being with their children. Be with your children, show effort with your children and God will give you the gift of discernment to help you. If you ask with humility, act with humility, he'll do it for you. I don't know what else to say. I think that's pretty much it. So we answered your yogurt. And what else? Was that it? One more? When the child is very angry. When the child is? Very angry. Uh, Saint Porfirio said that when, I think it was Saint Porfirio said, when the child is angry, a lot of times all you have to do is hold it, show love and affection, and it can calm down. All right? Um... A bigger child, you've got to look to see. Is it a physiological problem? Is it a spiritual problem? Is it an emotional problem? What's the problem? You've got to look at it. So you try. You use different things. And even if you get them wrong, if God sees that you're trying, he will enlighten. He will help you. He will help you to find, maybe not at that moment, but somewhere along the line you will find a solution to what's wrong with that child. Like the child I was talking about before, it, it was like crazy, the one, one child. Crazy, crazy, crazy all the time. And it turned out that it had a, a mineral and, and, and vitamin deficiency. It, uh, must have some lack of vitamin B or something in the brain. needed needed some um, high dosages of it and things like that. And no one knew what was wrong with the child. Why was it being disobedient? And that problem that the child had was, has been linked to people who have uh, criminal behaviours. So a lot of times people can be criminal and crazy because of physiological reasons, because of the brain, not because they're bad people a lot of times. So with the child that you're talking about, if they're older, you try to calm it down by saying, come here, come to mum, just try and hold the child, usually they will come down. If it doesn't, then you go to the next step to find out what's wrong. They're just unsettled, like a lot of you, like a woman. She might have on the day, she might have anxiety, fear. She might have, um, she might be uh, worried about something. And all she needs is a hug from her husband. Or sometimes the husband can feel insecure and unsettled. And all he needs is a hug from the wife. This, that's for adults, how much more for children. So all for children, they might just need a hug, they might need a bit of um, uh, physical contact. It works. Even as I said, a teacher told me that she said that she saw a child that was um, in the class and was all anxious. It was like, I don't know why it was anxious, could have been because it couldn't do something or whatever. And the teacher was walking past and just put his or her, her hand, put her hand on, his, on the shoulder and just gave her a little touch and then walked on. The child calmed down straight away. Reassurance, fear, 
when women, for example, when they've got their periods, they're very vulnerable to fear, anxiety, uh, all these type of things are very... And you can see, that's a physiological. Periods are physiological, but they affect the woman emotionally and mentally. So there are physical problems which cause problems with people, and there's other things that are spiritual, there's heredity, there's a lot of things. Um, next talk would be in, I think, October somewhere, is that right? And we're going to continue on this very, uh, I won't say interesting, soul-saving talks on the upbringing of children and I dedicate them to parents because there's a lot out there on the internet. There's a lot of books out there, Elder So-and-So and Saint So-and-So and monastic builders and books on the Jesus prayer and books on this and books on that, but not much for married people. Even though these talks really should be heard even by single people because they are full of things to do with spiritual life. But I wanted to dedicate it specifically to married people because there's not much out there. Okay, stand up. Don't forget to take the St. Paisius book over there. Through the prayers of Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.